guys. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast that I've been loving and listening to week to week. It's called Crime of the Truest Kind, hosted by Angel Wood. The podcast is centered on New England crime stories with regional history and rock and roll added in. Crime of the Truest Kind is one of my favorite podcasts right now. Sometimes I actually will go back and re-listen to old episodes as I wait for the new one to come out. And I find myself learning something new every time. I think part of the reason this podcast is so good is that host Angel Wood has formerly worked as a DJ in radio and she studied broadcast journalism. So not only are you getting a lot of information, but the sound quality of this show is fantastic. Also, because this podcast focuses primarily on true crime cases from the New England area, I'm learning about a lot of new stories that I'd never heard of before. And I think this is great because, of course, we all love a new true crime story, but more importantly, it's getting the stories of these victims out there. And a lot of these retellings include interviews done by Angel with reporters, witnesses, and even family members of victims. I could go on and on talking about this podcast all day, but instead of listening to me, check out this trailer for Crime of the Truest Kind and find episodes of Crime of the Truest Kind wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, guys. Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, host of Crime of the Truest Kind, a new podcast centered on New England crime stories. Each episode walks you through a local story, the places involved in that story, and unravels the details of what happened. To borrow from some of the show reviews, Crime of the Truest Kind has been called clever, brilliant, compassionate, smart, poignant, well-researched, a great balance of storytelling, humor, and New England facts. And if you like true crime and New England, this is the podcast you've been looking for. Now, as a longtime radio host in Boston, I will warn you, rock and roll does creep in. Crime of the Truest Kind. New episodes every other Wednesday. Follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify, Good Pods, Pandora, that's a lot of peas, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Also available on YouTube, SoundCloud, and crimeofthetruestkind.com. Thanks for listening. This movie was clearly made by a man about a woman because it's a story about a woman trying to be successful and she's angry at everyone. She's got mm-hmm. daddy issues. She wants revenge. Mm-hmm. She hates Freud. Like they literally bring Freud into this just to like add a cherry on top. And yeah. then I don't know if you noticed this, but I swear to God, there are more close-ins on Jessica Chastain's boobs than there are of her face. It's always of her writing something and just her knockers are right there. That is very true. Hi everyone, I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. And welcome to Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. Okay, Grace, what movie are we doing today? Today we're doing Molly's Game. I don't know how I feel about this movie. I have so many feelings about the real Molly Bloom that I don't even know what I'm feeling. So this should be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) However, I am not letting Molly Bloom and her possibly fictional movie rain on my parade too much because, on a more exciting note, Molly's Game is the 10th main episode that we have done for the podcast, and it is the 8th movie. And way back when Grace and I were first putting the podcast together, before we even started recording, we decided that we were going to do a season one with 10 movies. And that means that we are almost done with that season one. But because of you, dear listener, we have a ton of requests. So we are almost completely lined up for the next 10 episodes for season two. 
There are still a couple of episodes that don't have movies assigned to them yet, and we would very much love to get ahead of the game by starting to assign some movies to episodes for season three. So if you would like to make a request, you can do so by sending us a message on our website, crimescenespodcast.com, or you can send us a DM through any of our social medias. We are at Crime Scenes Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also have merch, and that includes t-shirts, tank tops, but also coffee mugs, thermoses, and my personal favorite, spiral notebooks for taking notes. You can find all of these things on our website, crimescenespodcast.com, or you can go to the link in bio on our Instagram, and that will take you to it as well. This is a great way to support the podcast and get yourself some cool stuff, but if you got plenty of stuff in your life you don't need anymore and you just like what you're listening to and want to support us, then you can always do that through Buy Me a Coffee. And the idea is for listeners to make a small, monetary donation to the podcast to show support, to show love in the same way you might show love or support to a friend by buying them a coffee. And you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash crime scenes pod or go to the link in bio on our Instagram. And finally, last but not least, help us spread the word about the podcast. Help us grow by going to Apple Podcasts and rating, reviewing and subscribing. All right, let's get to Molly's game. I'm Molly Bloom. Do you know about me? I read your indictment after I got your call last night, and I bought your book. Do you understand that you are charged with operating an illegal gambling business? Are you taking me on as a client? I don't think I can convince my partners to take a flyer on the poker princess. If you think a princess can do what I did, you're incorrect. I'm getting that you don't think much of me, but what if every single one of your ill-informed, unsophisticated opinions about me were wrong? I'd be amazed. This is a true story, but except for my own, I've changed all the names. Hey, Molly, my weekly poker game has moved to the Cobra Lounge. You'll help run it. I was in a room with movie stars, directors, and business titans. They were going all in, all the time. Thank you, Molly. This is for you. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop paying you as my assistant. You firing me? I'm not firing you. I'm just going to stop paying you. You get paid once a week from the game. It doesn't seem fair. You're going to stop paying me because I'm making too much money doing my second job. And if I say no, I'll lose both jobs because it doesn't seem fair. You don't have bargaining power here. You are unimportant. Do you know how many witches were burned in Salem? How many? None. They didn't burn witches. It's a myth. They hanged them. The humiliation had given way to blinding anger at my powerlessness. I wasn't going to wait before I put a plan in place. I'll be hosting a game in this suite every Tuesday night. First buy-in, 250000 That's going to make noise. Let's play. You spent eight years in Hollywood and two years in New York running the world's most exclusive and decadent man cave. Have you seen the other names in your indictment? Come on, Marty, just how deep into the Russian mob were you? Your exposure's crazy. You got 2.8 million on the street right now. You're gonna get blown up. You managed to build a multi-million dollar business using not much more than your wits. I'm about to be charged in federal court. Well, nobody's perfect. There's a new offer on the table. Complete immunity. We hand over the hard drives. You see what's on those hard drives? Families, lives, careers will be ruined. Why are you in this alone? Where are the people you're protecting by not telling the whole story? I'll tell them everything they want to know about me. About me. That's it. You can watch this movie on YouTube TV, Google Play, Vudu, and Amazon Prime Video for $2.99 to rent. Or you can rent it for $3.99 on Apple TV. This movie is starring Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, Kevin Costner, and Michael Sarah. 
It was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. And I didn't realize this. This is his first directorial debut. He never directed a movie before. Hmm. Kind of an interesting one to kick it off with. Yeah. I know I'm saying I don't know how I feel about it. It is a good movie. When I watched the movie the first time, I was thoroughly entertained. I really liked it. It was not until I started researching all the stuff after the fact that I started having issues with the movie and the real Molly Bloom in particular. But for a directorial debut, you are right. It is a really interesting story, and he did a good job for the most part. A brief summary, this film follows Molly Bloom, who becomes the target of an FBI investigation after her underground poker empire that she runs for Hollywood celebrities, athletes, business tycoons, and the Russian mob is exposed. Sources for this episode are going to be the movie itself, Molly's Game, made in 2017. I also read Molly Bloom's book, which is also called Molly's Game, the true story of the 26-year-old woman behind the most exclusive underground poker game in the world, which was published in 2014. And then there was actually another person that was involved in all of this that also wrote a book, and we're going to see him in the movie. I will let you know when we get to him. And the name of the book is Billion Dollar Hollywood Heist, and it's written by Houston Curtis with Dylan Howard. Honestly, I have a billion other sources for this episode. Yeah, me too. <laughs> They're mostly articles where Molly Bloom or Aaron Sorkin are interviewed around the time that the movie and the book were released. And I also have some podcasts where Molly Bloom is interviewed or it's movie reviews. We are just going to go ahead and put those on our show notes instead of reading all of those out to you. So if you want to check those out, as always, they'll be on our website and our show notes. And then a few things about this movie before we start. They do change the names of people in the movie. So the books have them as one name. The movie has them as another name. And then their <laughs> real names are totally different. So to avoid confusion, I'm going to do what we've done in the past. I'll say their real name at the beginning. And then I'm just going to call them by the name they are in the movie from that point on. Yeah. Also, I wanted to point out, you're going to notice that in this movie, the book that Molly Bloom wrote has been published in the movie. You see that she's written the book and they're going to talk mm -hmm. about it throughout the movie. And the, the only issue with that is the timing of when the book is published in the movie and the timing of when it was actually published is a little different. And so we'll explain that when we get to it. And the reason I point that out is I sort of have suspicion that there were certain things she chose to say or not say or portray about herself, depending on what was going on in her case at that time. Yeah. And that's really it for this movie. We don't have too many things to go before we start. So let's get into this one. All right. So this movie starts and we are nowhere near Los Angeles or New York or playing poker. We are in Deer Valley, Colorado, and we are on the top of a mountain. And we're at like a ski tournament or a ski competition. Mm -hmm. And we see this big, beautiful mountain. And then the first thing we hear is some really fast, really intense dialogue. A survey was taken a few years ago that asked 300 professionals one question. What's the worst thing that can happen in sports? Some people answered losing a game seven. And other people said getting swept in four. And it is basically telling us about a survey. Some people said it was missing the World Cup. Guatemala is eliminated. And some Brazilians said it was losing to Argentina. Not just in the World Cup, anytime, ever, in any contest. But one person answered that the worst thing that can happen in sports is fourth place at the Olympics. And we learn after we hear this dialogue that the person talking is Molly Bloom, played by Jessica Chastain. I'm Molly Bloom, and right now I'm ranked third in North America in women's moguls. I grew up in Loveland, Colorado, about two hours north of Denver. I have a BA in political science from the University of Colorado, 
where I graduated summa cum laude with a 3.9 GPA. The median LSAT score at Harvard Law School is 169. My score is 173. Number 87 up, 56 on deck. I've spent 16 years chasing winter and being coached by the best in the world. And she's at the Olympic trials for skiing. She does moguls and she's basically waiting for her run as other people are going. And she's mm-hmm. super in the zone. And the whole purpose of this opening scene is to give you her personality. She's very dry. She's very fast thinking. She's got statistics on the tip of her tongue at all times. And she's also very focused and very ready to go. Right now, we hear her talking about what her chances are to make the Olympics. And she knows them down to a T. She knows exactly what she needs to do. The altitude's 8,100 feet, and the pitch is 52 degrees, which is the same as the sides of the Great Pyramids. The wind's 20 to 25 miles an hour blowing left to right. It's three below zero at the top of the slope. And with 17 skiers in front of me, it's going to be like trying to stick a landing on a frozen infinity pool. Kiki blew out of her line. Shannon was off balance on her second landing. He's talking about Kiki Bandy and Shannon Keebler, my two toughest competitors who had significant point deductions on their final runs. I can make the Olympic team right now. We mm-hmm. also see in this moment that she says that her parents are down watching her. Specifically, her dad is down watching her. And her dad's name is Larry Bloom. And we'll learn more about him later. But she points out, My father's at the bottom of the slope, telepathically telling me to check my line. Check your line. I check my line. She knows down below, he's thinking, check your line for your race. And she does exactly mm-hmm. that. Like they know each other almost telepathically. And so she starts this race that she's clearly done so many times she could do it in her sleep. Good snow contact, calm of her body, legs together, good shape, no line deviation. Set up for the D-spin and stick the landing. And basically what we see is a freak accident happen. She talks about how she's going down this mountain and there are little pine cones or little pieces of twigs on the mountain for visibility. When visibility is bad the way it is now, race officials toss pine boughs on the course so the skiers have some foreground depth reference. And somehow one of these pine cones hits her ski and her ski is so tightly bound to her foot. It's basically welded on and it hits it perfectly that it makes her ski fall off as she is doing a jump. The tightness of your bindings is determined by what's called a din setting. If you're a beginner, your din setting is probably a two or three. If you're an experienced weekend skier, it's probably seven or eight. Mine's 15. My boots are basically welded to my skis, right? So how does this happen? It happened because I hit a pine bough that had become frozen in the snow. And I hit it so precisely that it simply snapped the release of my bindings. And so she is in the air, loses her ski, and we see her just come crashing down. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we learn in the midst of all of this information is that Molly was never supposed to be a skier. When I was 12 years old, for no particular reason, my back exploded. Tough it out. Good advice. And lose the attitude. Less than 10 minutes later, I was in the back of an ambulance. I had what's called rapid onset scoliosis. My spine was curved at 63 degrees and I'd need a seven hour surgical procedure that involved straightening my spine, extracting bone from my hip, fusing 11 vertebrae together and fastening steel rods to the fused segments. The doctors told her she would never ski again. And the second that her vertebrae were fused and the surgery was successful, she got back on her skis and kept doing it. So she is truly like a miracle athlete. I was on skis again in a year running moguls in 18 months, and by my 20th birthday, I made the U.S. ski team. 
So not only are you thinking, oh, shit, she is going to crash and fall on her head. She very specifically points out, I am about to break my back that has already had a bunch of problems. And she crashes onto the ground. And the very last thing we hear her say is, None of this has anything to do with poker. I'm only mentioning it because I wanted to say to whoever answered that the worst thing that could happen in sports was fourth place at the Olympics. Seriously? Fuck you. She literally had a fucking freak accident that prevented her from going to the Olympics at all. Mm -hmm. And she's got some strong words for that person. Yeah. And like she said, that had nothing to do with poker. That is introducing us to Molly Bloom. That is introducing us to the person that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this is she gives some information about the track that she's going down, and it's completely wrong. She says that the mountain has an incline of 53 degrees, and it's the same as the Great Pyramid. That's not true. I somehow (laughs) came across a bunch of skiers that were very upset on the internet because they said that was impossible. That's amazing. I'm glad you found the skier web board i know they were like (laughs) i really wish they had done more research on this this isn't hard to see and i looked on the official website and it is true it is not as steep as the great pyramid it's about 28 degrees and it's 827 feet long they also point out that they show molly bloom doing this huge jump where she does a flip and is inverted when she goes through the air and based on technology at that time women could not physically go inverted on jumps like that and even if a man could they were not allowed to So people had a lot of things to say about this intro. (laughs) I thought it was a really good intro. I thought it was really intense. It introduces you to Molly Bloom. However, there is a serious question as to whether or not this big crash actually happened. Like I mentioned, Mm. I read Molly Bloom's book makes zero mention of this crash. She was a skier. She was trying to make the Olympics. She did ultimately become ranked third in North America. But what she tells us is she had a lot of pain with her back. Mm -hmm. It was getting harder and harder to manage. And because she placed third, she made the U.S. ski team and she wanted to end on a high note. So she chose to retire at that point. So I was like, did this happen? And I went through a rabbit hole trying to figure out if it did or not. Right. Because the crash in the movie, a normal person could die from that type of crash. So it seems like it would be an important detail that you would bring up. Right. In your book about your life. And so I finally, at three in the morning, looking at the International (laughs) Ski website, determined this is what I think happened. So Molly Bloom was trying to make the Olympic team in 1998 when she was already out of high school, but she had not finished college yet. Mm -hmm. And then she already had a hurt back and she fell at some sort of qualifier cup and she did not make the 1998 Olympic team. However, she chose to keep skiing. So she's still skiing through 1999. And it's in 1999 that she ultimately gets the ranking of third place in North America. And she Mm -hmm. chooses at that point to end on a high note to be done with skiing and to retire. And the only Mm -hmm. reason I'm making such a big deal out of this, this is literally two minutes (laughs) into the movie and we've spent 10 minutes talking about it, is because these little details are going to be an issue throughout the entire movie when you're comparing it to the real story. And you kind of see that Molly Bloom is very, very good about giving you the version of herself that is convenient for her at the time and makes her look good. So it kind of Mm -hmm. ultimately makes you wonder, what is the truth in all of this? Especially because I think she was also very good about maintaining her own narrative. So Mm -hmm. you've pretty much got her book. You've got interviews of her when the movie came out and her book came out. It's very hard to find other stuff. There's that one other book, but that's got its own set of problems. Right. 
Then after we see Molly crash, we see her laying on the ground and we don't know what happens to her. But obviously she lives and is okay to some extent because we go to a new scene. It's the middle of the night. We get some on-screen text and it says West Hollywood, 12 years later, 5.06 a.m. And we're in a house and you see it's dark and there's boxes everywhere. Initially, I thought like maybe she had just moved into this house. But then you realize what you're looking at is a bunch of books in boxes. And it is Molly Bloom's book that she has just published. Mm -hmm. So in the movie, she has at this point just published her book. And then you see her in her bed and she's sleeping and she's getting a phone call at five in the morning. And I am shocked and amazed that she answered that phone. I would not hear my phone to save my life. There's no way I would hear it. Yeah. Well, I'm someone who like pretty much refuses to answer the phone unless I know who you are or you leave me a voicemail. (laughs) Then I'll call you back. She, by some miracle, is woken up by her buzzing phone and answers. And the person on the other line is a special agent with the FBI. And he is telling her we have a warrant for your arrest. And if she doesn't come out of her house right now, they're going in. Hello? Yes. This is Special Agent Thomasino of the FBI. We have a warrant for your arrest. Sorry? Outside your door, we want you to come out here, okay? Listen to me now. Make sure we can... Who is this? This is Special Agent Thomasino of the FBI, Miss Bloom. You got 30 seconds to open your door or we're breaking it down. Do you understand what I just said? And this is how her book actually starts. They really did call her and do this. And so she starts going towards her front door. She opens the door. And when she opens the door, she has got 17 people with guns pointed at her. And she is like, what the hell is going on? Hands in the air. Put your hands in the air. It's been a mistake. Are you Molly Bloom? Yes, but there's... I want you to walk towards me very slowly, okay? Go ahead. Slower. I'm... Slower. Slow down. Come on. Come on. I'm having walk a hard slower. time seeing the, the flashlights walk in my eyes. Walk slower. Eye. Yes, sir. And she can't see because there's flashlights on her. They're telling her to walk slow. They keep telling her to slow down. They're pretty rough with her. They get her up against the wall and they're searching her. And everything in this is true and did happen up to this point right here, which drives me nuts. (laughs) You're under arrest for running an illegal gambling operation. Do you understand? Uh, yes. Say you understand. I understand. Are you fucking kidding me, sir? (laughs) If a cop ever tells you, say you understand, don't say a damn word. Yeah. I probably shouldn't give advice like that, but I'm not kidding. That That's ridiculous. <laughs> Are you joking? Like, I'm as mad as the skiers were about the inverted flips or whatever. Like, yeah. that was so stupid. So yeah. that didn't happen. She did get arrested with a lot of guns pointed at her. And the thing is, we know this is about poker, but why the fuck do they have so many guns on her? And yeah. so that is a question that's kind of leading you into, holy shit, what did she do that we're going right. to gradually answer? And then we jump to what appears to be a home video. Yeah. So we get this weird home video where she says, Every year on our birthdays, my father would interview my younger brothers and me. It was like outlook on marriage, on people in general, on role models. What do you um, think about the following concepts? Just going to run them by you. Marriage. It is a trap. Society. It is a joke. People. I think there's good and bad, but I don't trust them. I don't trust people. 
And the part that, like, already I knew I didn't like Molly <laughs> was when he asked her. Who are the heroes or heroines in your life? Who, uh, who do you really respect? I don't have any heroes. You don't have any heroes. How's this for hubris? I don't. Because if I reach the goals I set out for myself, then the person I become, that'll be my hero. And I was just like, okay, this is, you're too much for me. But apparently these interviews actually did happen. Like this is something that happened growing up. And if you go on Molly Bloom's Instagram, you can see a little snippet of her replying to her dad's query of what are your thoughts on marriage? And she says, marriage is a trap. And Molly Bloom posted that on her Instagram was like, oh, how things change because the real Molly Bloom recently got married. (laughs) Yeah. And she gives us a little foreshadowing. Even by teenage girl standards, I would appear to be irrationally angry at nothing in particular. It would be another 22 years before I'd find out why. And we've now seen her dad twice. Spoiler alert, she's going to have daddy issues. Yeah. Why does every movie about a woman have to somehow go back to daddy issues? <laughs> I don't know that she had them as strongly as they express in this movie, but here they are. Yeah. So after we get this home video, we then see that Molly decided to take a year off before she decides to go to law school. Because earlier in her big monologue, she talks all about how she has this very perfect and specific plan. And she's already got her LSAT score done. And she's going to law school. And she's ready to go. And out of nowhere, basically, she's retired from skiing because of this injury. Mm -hmm. And she's not going to go to law school. She's going to take a year off. And she's just going to be a normal human that's not an athlete. And then after a year, she'll go back to Boulder. She'll do law school. And she'll do everything she always wanted to do Mm -hmm. which to me is like okay that doesn't surprise me at all nor do i see any problem with that but apparently her parents had a massive problem with this because when she told them this is what she was going to do they cut her off and i did realize she is probably 22 at this point 22 23 yeah cutting her off wouldn't be that unusual but i got the sense that that was not what their plan was and then when she decided to do this they were not going to help her financially yeah And so she goes initially and she's going to live with a fellow skier. In real life, this fellow skier was very clear with her, according to her book, that you can stay with me for a little bit, but you cannot stay forever. And he did not necessarily think this was the greatest idea. And I mean, he made it clear to her that even just getting a waitressing job in L.A. is not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And they don't really show that in the movie, but they definitely do in the book. Also, she ultimately befriends and moves in with an heiress in Beverly Hills to a peanut butter fortune. That's what she says in the book that went to boarding school in New York. And I swear to God, it had to be hours that I was trying to figure out who this person was and I couldn't figure it out. So in the movie, Molly gets a waitressing job pretty quickly and we see her hit the ground running pretty hard. I got a job working bottle service at a club in Hollywood called Nacional Nightclub. It was Cuban themed. So my uniform was camouflage short shorts and a wife beater. The promoter would go over which record producer was sitting where, which hot designers, which Lakers, and Boris Lava, the Bulgarian billionaire, who didn't drink, but who ran a $100,000 bar tab. My job was to get people to spend more money than they needed to. In the book, it's much more difficult for her. It takes her a while. And at her first job, her boss tells her, if I tell you a customer is VIP, you do whatever they want. She says, okay. And of course, like clockwork, the first customer is a gross old man and he tells her to turn around. And on the one hand, I'm like, this is terrible. I can't believe you did this to her. And I fully believe it happened, but I don't believe that Molly was this naive to which she just turns around and is like, I was looking to see what he was having me look at when the reality is he's checking her out from behind. Right. And she turns back around and she's so shocked and appalled and the boss doesn't give a shit. 
And Mm -hmm. I wish they had brought something like that in showing how hard it was, but they don't. But this whole incident leads to her getting her job with the person that ultimately will bring her into the poker ring because she actually gets so upset. She runs out crying and runs into an alley and almost gets hit by this Mercedes. And out he comes, her soon-to-be boss, Dean Keith. In real life, that's what happens. Yeah. In real life, he literally almost hit her with his car and he gets out of the car and he is like, hey, you are, are you a waitress? Can you be a waitress? And she's she's almost got hit by a car and she's crying. She's traumatized. And she's like, yes. And he goes, OK, come with me. Now, the movie actually tones this down significantly right. to a more realistic thing. I See, that's the thing. Did this fucking happen? I don't know. Yeah, because it's like, was that not in the movie because it was like too wild and unbelievable? But is that the truth? Because then it's in the movie it's just it's pretty normal she's, she's working as a cocktail waitress at a normal club and she's got her regulars that come in she's good at it she knows how to get them to buy the more expensive stuff and this guy just approaches her and asks her to come work for him so she does right either way we meet dean keith aka yes. real name darren feinstein now in real life you know how i mentioned he asked her are you a waitress she actually worked initially for him in his restaurant that he owned as a waitress mm. eventually he said you should come work for me at my real estate company as an assistant. So she started doing that. And this guy, it is agreed by absolutely everyone, is a fucking asshole. I mean, people that liked him, people that didn't like him, he was an absolute dick. And he was an absolute dick to her. So kind of begs the question why she didn't use his real name in her book or the movie. Yes. And she learned a lot, which reminded me kind of of my first job, although my boss was not an asshole. (laughs) But it's like baptism by fire. Yeah. And so he calls her at five in the morning and he demands that she bring him bagels right now. I remember the day started by being about bagels. This is Molly. Get to the office. Pick up bagels. Do we know? So she drives over and she's got bagels and she hands them to him in the bag and he flips out. What are those? Bagels. Are these from Bluebell? Yeah, it's on the way from my house. Seriously? You might as well have stopped at a fucking homeless shelter. You might as well have walked into a motherfucking homeless shelter and said, I'd like a dozen bagels from this homeless shelter, please. I do not eat bagels from Blue Fucking Bell, Molly, because these are poor people bagels. In the book, she says pink dot bagels, but Blue Bell is an ice cream in Texas. So I was like, (laughs) huh, do they make bagels? Anywho. He throws the bagels at her head and tells her, I do not eat these bagels. These are poor people bagels. Now, all of this happened, except he didn't say poor people bagels. And we'll get to what he really said in a second. And then after he does that, he seems to be okay because then he comes in and he throws his phone at her and he says, My weekly poker game is moving to the Cobra Lounge tomorrow night and then every Tuesday night. You'll help run it. Take these names and numbers. Tell them to bring 10 grand in cash for the first buy-in. The blinds are 5,100. And Molly immediately looks at these numbers and they are celebrities. Mm -hmm. And in her book, Molly Bloom does not name all the names of the people involved in this poker game. She only names certain people because they had previously been named. Mm -hmm. And some of the people include Tobey Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Todd Phillips, who's the director of The Hangover. And later we're going to get people like Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and some others. Nellie. Nellie makes an appearance. (laughs) And so she texts all these people. And in the book, she actually describes how she wrote the text out 10 times because she didn't know how formal to be. But once she finally writes it out, they all respond within 90 seconds. I put the numbers in my phone and composed a simple message. There'd be a game tomorrow night at the Cobra Lounge. There was a $10,000 buy-in. 
Online players confirm that they'd be there. All within 90 seconds of my sending the text. They also explain in the book the Cobra Lounge is the Viper Room. And the Viper Room was once owned by Johnny Depp. There was a lawsuit between Johnny Depp and Anthony Fox. And in the midst of this lawsuit, Dean Keith comes into ownership of this bar. So that is where they're going. Molly is also told that she needs to have food and drinks and stuff for them. So she goes and buys a cheese plate at a local grocery store and she makes a poker playlist. I googled, what type of music do poker players like to listen to? And then tried to figure out how to make a playlist out of one Kenny Rogers song. And everyone is making fun of her for this cheese plate and the poker playlist. It was all these old songs. Nobody (laughs) likes them. It was terrible. And we see this first day, she is mainly being the waitress and she is taken in the cash as these celebrities come in. And one person that we do see walk in is Michael Sarah, And we are going to know him in the movie as Player X. And he is a dick. And <laughs> she's trying really hard just to keep her head down and smile. And then we get the montage of all these guys playing poker. Mm-hmm. And Molly says in this voiceover as they're playing poker that she knew nothing about poker. So she would just Google everything that they said. I googled every word I heard that I didn't know. Flop, river, fourth street, tilt, cooler, boat, nuts, playing the rush. And there was also a nice guy that was in this poker game that actually gave her some lessons. In real life. In real life. And when I say lessons, he just gave her a run through. It was primarily her watching and learning. Mm. And then at the very end of this poker game, we hear Dean say, Hey, tip Molly if you want to get invited back next week. Tip Molly. Deep down, I didn't like the sound of that. Thank you so much. Deep down, I knew that when your boss says... Molly. Yeah. Don't fucking tell anybody. That's usually not the beginning of a promising law career. See you next week. But that was deep down. In real life, she thought nothing of this. She was like, oh, I got tipped. Okay. Like, she really didn't think of anything of it. She was very happy to get $3,000. She got $3,000 cash. Pretty nice. And they have Player X specifically go by and give her the money and walk away. Player X was the worst tipper of anybody. He was the stingiest motherfucker that was there. And I understand she's making $3,000, but this guy was a multimillionaire. So, yeah. Then we're flashing forward to the present day. So if you remember, Molly got arrested earlier at the beginning of the movie. And then we flashed back to after she had her ski crash and all that stuff. We're going back to the present day again. And she is in a waiting room. And we see her. She's dressed really nicely. And there's also like a little girl. She's in a school uniform also waiting there. And this little girl is reading The Crucible. Did you read that in high school? Yes. Did you really? I don't know why. We did not read it, but we watched the movie. (laughs) I have no clue why we didn't read the book. I guess Daniel Day-Lewis was good enough. (laughs) So she's reading this book and she kind of starts to bond with this little girl. What are you reading? The Crucible. For school. My father assigned it. Do you know how many witches were burned in Salem? How many? None. They didn't burn witches. It's a myth. They hanged them or drowned them or crushed them with heavy rocks. The whole idea of the Crucible and this theme behind the Crucible, that's going to come back into play. Mm -hmm. It's completely fictionalized and it is just so unnecessary, but it's there. So little girls reading the Crucible. And this is also where we are going to meet Charlie. And Mm -hmm. Charlie is Idris Elba. Molly? Yes. Charlie Jaffe. Uh, Thank you again for seeing me so early. 
So Charlie is not real. He is, for the most part, completely fictional. There's maybe one or two facts that we'll point out were actually true. Molly did have a lawyer, and his name was Jim Walden. Idris is definitely way hotter than Jim Walden. I think that's an undisputable fact. So when we meet Charlie, we find out that he was a prosecutor before he became a defense attorney. Jim was a federal prosecutor before he went into private practice. He's done a lot of white collar crime and a lot of interesting cases if you check out his Wikipedia. But Aaron Sorkin wanted to have a character that he could make his own and vary from the storyline. So if you look up any articles or anything interviewing Idris Elba, like Idris didn't talk to Jim Walden, nothing about the character of Charlie was based on the real attorney. And I also saw that one of the reasons he wanted to create this character is he wanted to have a character in the movie that basically was coming into this blind like we were and like he was when he first met Molly Bloom. So a lot of the questions that he is asking Molly as we see the different scenes with them, those are questions that Aaron Sorkin asked her just to get a feel for what she did and why she did what she did. Right. So she meets Charlie and he points out that she is one of 35 people that has been indicted on a RICO charge. And he's asking her. I read your indictment after I got your call last night and I bought your book. I'm only on page 112, but Molly, did you commit a felony and then write a book about it? I haven't run a game in over two years, not to spoil the ending, but that's when the government raided my game and took all of my money, assuming all of it was made illegally, which it wasn't. I've been living in my mother's house in Telluride and I wrote the book so I could start paying off debts. I just finished the press tour for the book and I moved back to Los Angeles so I could start over. He tells her that he has an $80,000 retainer and she says she doesn't have it, but she'd be good for it. And she explains that the government has seized all her money. And so she explains writing the book as getting money to live and to pay her debts. And you might be wondering, like, how has the government seized her money when she hasn't been convicted of anything yet? And this is actually through a process called civil judicial forfeiture. And basically, it's a process that allows the government to take your property if they think that it is involved in a crime and you don't have to be convicted yet. You can go to trial and fight the government for it after they take it. But again, that will take money for you to hire lawyers most likely to win that case. So it's kind of a loop here. And one of the things that she's been charged with is running an illegal gambling operation in violation of the federal code. And the actual statute there allows for forfeiture of assets that would have been gained from the operation of an illegal gambling ring. And when the profits were high enough on any day, then the government's allowed to presume that those profits were made illegally. Yeah. And he also points out that the other people associated in this big group of arrests, they're all from the Russian mob. You're trying to tell me you're in my office because you raked a game of Texas Hold'em. Yes. Have you seen the other names in your indictment? Nicholas Kozlovsky, Peter Drazinski, Peter Antonovich, the Gershon brothers. I mean, come on, Marty, just how deep into the Russian mob were you? Because your book doesn't say. And you as the viewer at this point are kind of like, what did she do? Because she's saying that she doesn't know any of these people, yet she has basically been arrested in a bunch of mob arrests. I don't defend violent criminals. I've never heard anyone in my life. Your friends have. I've never heard of 90% of the names on the indictment. Any other 10%? I didn't know they were connected. And then it's at this point that Charlie calls her out on something that I take issue with the fact that Molly Bloom did this in real life, but also that the movie very carefully portrays this. And we'll get into all of it as it goes. But basically, Charlie says, Let me ask you a question. The character in the book you call Dean Keith, he didn't say poor people bagels, did he? 
I think I know who he is. I think I know a real estate lawyer that worked with him and quit. He said, nigger bagels, right? I'm not telling you his real name. He's not involved in this. But you were willing to name some names. You're claiming that you don't associate with violent people, but yet here you are with this shady boss that Mm -hmm. is overtly racist and you're going to change his name. Right. And she doesn't really have any answer to that. And Mm -hmm. basically he flat out tells her, look, I can't represent you. We regularly lend out our best litigators like me to the ACLU, Civil Poverty Law Center, veterans groups. But I don't think I can convince my partners to take a flyer on the poker princess. I didn't name myself the poker princess. Uh, Molly Bloom, self-proclaimed poker princess. Us Weekly? I would agree. It would be unusual for them to print something that wasn't true, but it's not true. And then this is probably one of the few times in the movie we see Molly really show emotion. I'm getting you don't think much of me, but what if every one of your ill-informed, unsophisticated opinions about me were wrong? I'd be amazed. Yeah, you know what, bud? You would. You don't need me. You need a publicist. No, I need a fucking lawyer. And apparently this reaction is enough for him to say... All right. I'm going to walk you through the arraignment this morning because you shouldn't do that alone. I'll be your attorney for the purposes of arraignment, but I'm not going to be your attorney any farther than that. So Molly and Charlie have kind of had this rocky start. And then we jump to a flashback and we get more interactions with the dad. Oh, dad. Okay, so we have a memory of her skiing and her dad's coaching her. My father's a therapist and a psychology professor at Colorado State. No! No! The second rule of his house is that academic excellence and athletic excellence weren't optional. Can't be afraid of it. Right? Don't play defense. And the first rule was that he made all the rules. I did. And he's giving very intense pageant mom advice. And like, she's tired. She wants to go home. And he's like, no, you have to keep going. Dad, I'm pretty tired. And she's tired. I've been out here since six o'clock. Her lips are blue. You tired? Yeah. What's another word for tired? Name a synonym for tired, and we'll get in the car. Weak. That's right. Let's go home. Again. And she goes back up the mountain and goes another round anyways. And it's in this point that we find out that her dad was a therapist and psychology professor at Colorado State. And they say that he always pushed her and her brothers for excellence, and he made all the rules. And in real life, I couldn't find too much on the dad, but there are articles where the brothers say that our father pushed us to be excellent, and that's why all of us are excellent. And Molly does not really mention this in her book. In the movie, there are a lot of flashbacks to her father and her relationship with her father and that it was very intense. He demanded a lot from her, but they clearly didn't really get along. And we see that she's very angry and she seems to be very angry at him. We don't know why. Ultimately, we're seeing flashbacks to understand why Molly is the way she is. And this is going to culminate in a moment at the end. And interestingly enough, we jump to the next scene and it's a voiceover. And it's actually her saying, I decided to postpone law school again because I was doing really well. I was making money and she's actually happy doing what she's doing, which is in some ways the very opposite of what her dad always wanted her to do which is follow the straight and narrow. 
And we see her with a bunch of cash. And in the book, they talk about how one of the first things she does is she goes to a place and she has a stylist help her pick out all these clothes on Rodeo Drive. And then she goes to pay and she has all this cash and the clerk clearly becomes concerned. And she goes, I just want to warn you, you really need to be careful. Like, essentially, she thinks Molly's a sex worker. And she says, oh, I had luck in poker. And then immediately the lady relaxes. (laughs) Which I also find interesting because the second she says, oh, I just had luck in poker, no one cares. Yeah. This charge and this whole story about the crime is so fascinating to me because I really don't care about the crime itself. It's more Molly's choices after the fact to save her reputation and whether or not those things were the right thing to do or the thing you should do. But as far Mm -hmm. as her running this poker game, I really don't care. Right. And I think it is in this scene in the movie where we start to learn that player X is going to be the best player at the table. Yes. So after we've learned that Molly's put off law school another year, we see her really thriving in the poker game and Mm -hmm. we see player X playing and we learn that he was really good. Mm -hmm. And we get this scene and he's basically trying to mess with this other player's head. Player X subscribed to the belief that money won was twice as good as money earned. He lived to beat people and take their money. He's making him think that he's going to lose, that he should fold. Look at me. I swear on my mother's life I have you. Player X was the best player at the table, and tonight, this guy was the worst. He's staring at his cards. Even a reasonably good amateur would know it was mathematically the best hand, which in poker is called the nuts. There was $47,000 in the pot and the guest was holding the nuts, but he was starting to get confused because a movie star was talking to him. And I mean, he is relentlessly telling this guy, I wouldn't lie to you. Either I am messing with you or you're new to the game. You've had bad cards all night. You should have folded after the flop. And I don't want to win more of your money this way. I've got queens under here. Take your time. Fuck you. No. And Player X was particularly bad about this. So what he would do is he would immediately take his winnings and he would cash out and leave. And apparently, based on the movie and the book, it's not not allowed, but it's frowned upon. Yeah. And he did that all the time. And he gave shitty tips. And who is this fucking motherfucker, Grace? Toby Maguire. Spidey Man. Oh my god. I was just shocked when I read it was him because I didn't like follow this when it was in the news at all. And then I'm like, wait, he's the asshole? Yeah. Yeah. Tobey Maguire is a dick. Apparently. And it's really interesting to me because both Molly Bloom and Harlan Curtis, who wrote the other book, and other people involved in this, they love to name drop and they love to talk about how Tobey Maguire was in in all this. And they love mm-hmm. to reference him being in Spider-Man. And for me, I think of all the superhero movies that there are and Tobey Maguire is Spider-Man. That was so long ago, I don't even care. Yeah, there were three movies, so obviously they had to be successful. But then the third one was real weird. He got real emo, and then he was done. Like, when's the last <laughs> time you saw Tobey Maguire? <laughs> he was also in Seabiscuit, which was a right. horse movie. 
But everybody apparently wanted to play him in poker. They knew he was good. And they even if they weren't good at poker, they wanted to lose to him. Like they just wanted to play poker with Toby Maguire. Yeah. And the other thing is Molly wanted Toby to stay because he brought people into the game. And Toby wanted to stay as long as he was still winning. And they don't do this so much in the movie, but they do this a lot in the book where they will give you poker terms. And one of the terms that they do at this moment is the term fish. A fish is a particular kind of player. A fish has money. A fish plays loose cool. and doesn't fold a lot. A fish is good, uh, but not too good. There's an ATM in the hall, bro. The Cobra Lounge may have belonged to Dean Keith, but the game belonged to Player X. People wanted to say they played with him, the same way they wanted to say they rode on Air Force One. My job security was going to depend on bringing him his fish. And they define it as somebody that's good at poker, not great, but they keep the game going. And Molly basically explains that her goal was to keep Tobey Maguire there or Player X there by bringing in new fish. And so we see her start doing different things to scout more people that are good, not great at poker to keep in those celebrities, including Player X slash Tobey Maguire. And we see her out at a really small casino that's just outside of Los Angeles. And she did this. She would go to those casinos and she would talk to the workers on the ground floor and she would say, I'll compensate you if you can get me some good players to come and play in my poker game. And they would. You know how the game is Cobra Lounge, right? Sure. 1,000 for every player you send me. You get a piece of what they lose. No pros. I'm Molly. And we see her talking to the cocktail waitresses at the bar that she used to work at. And she tells them, again, she'll compensate them if they can get her some good players. If they say they're interested in poker, you give them my number, I bet them. They end up playing in a game, I'll give you $1,000 the first time they play, 500 every time after that. Be sure to mention, these guys are all regulars. And this worked. So Molly was able to consistently bring in people to keep this poker game going. And what's really interesting to me is everybody wants to win. So you have to be really careful about who you select. She had a rule. She did not let professional players come in. And there were some that would ask her and she would tell them no. Mm -hmm. And you didn't want people so bad, which will come back to bite us in the ass later, and owe so much money that it was going to bust and they couldn't pay it and the game would be out. So you needed this really perfect balance of people where everybody felt like they were winning enough to be happy. Another thing we see at this point is not only is Molly recruiting a lot of new people, but we see that both in the book and the movie, she is really taking the time as these poker games are going on to listen to what these players are saying to each other, not related to poker, but just related Mm -hmm. to current events. The art world is controlled by a few major dealers. China's telecom companies want to partner with other providers. The owners don't mind spending $30 million on an outfielder against 320 with 110 artists. They alone control the market. They choose the artists. They want to be important. Spending 10 million on a pitcher who was 8 and 14. So he's gonna be get hard. They set the prices, they mark them up 70, 80, 90 percent. Yeah, they're all very excited about a company called Twitter. And she started really trying to teach herself things so that if she could happen to come into the conversation with anything, she could say something intelligent that they would remember her. Poker was my Trojan horse into the highest level of finance, technology, politics, entertainment, art. All I had to do was listen. And another thing she would do all the time was she would just offer to do stuff for them. Like they would come in and they would say that their wife has been on their ass about going out to dinner and she'd go, I know a really good place. Let me make a reservation for you. And she got really good at making reservations and stuff at places that were booked for a year and she knew how to weasel her way in. So Mm -hmm. suddenly it's like she's not only running this poker game, she is running these people's lives. She's basically a personal assistant to 20 people at a time. And honestly, it's going fairly well, too, because not only is she 
not going to law school anymore. It's completely out the window. She's not even considering putting off a new year. She gets a new car. She gets a new apartment. But then we are brought back down to reality when we go back to the present day and we are at Molly's arraignment in court. Right. And I actually was pleasantly surprised that this arraignment was fairly realistic. So here's all that's going to happen today. The judge is going to ask each defendant if they've read the indictment or they'd like the court to read it to them. Then the judge is going to ask how you plead. You're going to answer not guilty. I'll make it clear for the record that I'm not your counsel, but I am appearing on your behalf at the arraignment, appropriate persona. I feel like people, they really don't understand the purpose of court settings. Court settings are so much frill and very little happens. And I feel like a lot of times when people are called to court, they think that it's going to be this big deal. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of the places where I worked, it's really you just sitting there because it's the attorney meeting with the judge, with the prosecutor or talking to the prosecutor, and then you're resetting your case to do other things. And that's kind of what the arraignment is. The arraignment is your first setting where they're going to read you your charge. Yeah, so... At arraignment, besides setting things, you're going to enter your initial plea. So your initial plea is guilty or not guilty. And I would never let a client enter a plea of guilty at an arraignment. The attorney still needs to get all of the discovery. You still need to talk to them. So if you've ever been in a situation where someone pleads not guilty at arraignment and you're really upset because you know they did whatever they did, they're not being an asshole. It's their attorney saying, I still need to look at your case. Yeah. And so we have this really goofy scene. Aside from the fact it is realistic in that he knows the prosecutors, he knows the judge, There's a little bit of chaos because he's trying to talk to her while telling a judge, hold on one second. And that kind of stuff I appreciated because it wasn't so formal like I think a lot of movies do. It was very him having to talk really fast and get information fast and then say it out loud to the judge. Mm -hmm. And one thing he does before Molly's case is called is Molly is sitting on this bench and there is a guy in between them. (laughs) And then Charlie is on the other side and he keeps looking at this guy. I don't know who this guy is. He's not an officer or anything. He's just a random dude. And he keeps saying, hey, will you switch seats with me so I can talk to her? And he'll ask her one little question, and then he'll switch back. And then he'll remember he wants to ask her something else, and then they'll switch back again. Your old boss, the one in the book you called Dean Keith, he was terrible to you. I cover up for him by changing it to poor people bagels. I promise you it couldn't matter less. Has the defendant seen a copy of the indictment? Let's make a conversation. Yes, Your Honor. Hey, switch back. I get the point of it. They're trying to bring like some humor into this very serious moment, I guess, for some relief. But why on earth are you not just sitting in that seat? What What's going on here? But yeah. it's goofy. Ultimately, the conversations that they're having in this flip-flopping musical chairs is he initially really believed her to be this kind of unethical person that was in the mob and was going to protect bad people. And he had very little respect for her. But I think he's gradually seeing that she's not like that, but he can't really put his finger on why switch back seriously you said you got 10 times that much on the street in my office when i said the retainer was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. you said i know 10 times that much yeah counsel i need to record your appearance please the court your honor just one moment so he eventually asked her in the switching back and forth thing why didn't you sell your debt sheet because she has millions of dollars on this debt sheet from people who owe her money from poker games but she has no money now and there's plenty of people who would be willing to buy that debt sheet from her your extended credit your destitute and you leave two and a half million dollars on the street i had to didn't anyone try to buy your debt sheet everyone tried to buy my debt sheet is this the right time why didn't you sell it like you sold your clothes i couldn't 
couldn't be sure how they were going to collect? I was afraid you were going to say that. And she says the reason that she wouldn't sell it is because she couldn't be sure how the person who bought it would collect. Meaning that if she sells her debt sheet to the mob, they're going to go beat people up or kill people or whatever to get the money. So I think it's like, this is the line that Aaron Sorkin gives us where we're like, oh, look, she's a good person and cares about people. Counsel. <clears throat> yes, Your Honor. Uh, Charles Jaffe for the defendant. For the purposes of this hearing only? No, sir. I am Molly Bloom's attorney. Uh, she's read the indictment, discussed it with a lawyer, waves the right to have it read to her, and pleads not guilty. Thank you. You may be seated. So after she has managed to convince Charlie that she is a good person, he stands up to make his appearance, and the judge asks, is it an appearance for purposes of arraignment only, meaning he's only going to be her lawyer for arraignment, which is what he told Molly was going to happen? Or are you making a general appearance, as in you are her lawyer for this case? And he takes a minute... And then it's revealed that he's going to be her lawyer for the entirety of the case. So it's a big crescendo moment. And Mm -hmm. this was another thing I found troubling that they're like, okay, even though she let this racism be brushed under the rug, her just so happens to be black lawyer is good with representing her. Right. And then we get into the next scene, which is also walking a very fine line. I was like, I don't know if you want to be doing this. So here's what happens in the next scene. We get another flashback and it's Molly's voiceover. And we're seeing a series of pictures and they're old historic photos. And she's talking about a guy named Matthew Robinson. There was a track star in the 1930s named Matthew Robinson. Matthew Robinson shattered the Olympic record in the 200 at the Berlin Games in 1936. Absolutely shattered the Olympic record and came in second. The man who came in first was Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens went on to be a legend. Matthew Robinson went on to be a janitor at a whites-only middle school in Pasadena. And she's telling us that Matthew Robinson shattered some track record, like completely shattered it. But mm-hmm. he came in second. The person that came in first is Jesse Owens. And Jesse Owens is a well-known Olympic gold medalist track star. And the mm-hmm. particular thing about Jesse Owens is that he won his gold medal in Nazi Germany. And so mm-hmm. it was not only that he won this gold medal, but that it was a black man winning this medal amongst right. these horrible, horrible people and yeah. showing that he is just as capable, if not more, than this great white race that Hitler is trying to build. Right. And they talk about because he got second place, he did not get the recognition because he did not win, despite the fact that he also shattered this world record. Right. And so then to make matters worse. (laughs) As if that wasn't enough, Matthew Robinson had a little brother who was also an athlete. His name was Jackie. His brother is Jackie Robinson, the first black man to play baseball in the MLB. So his brother is known for being this major pioneer. Jesse Owens is known for being this major pioneer. And what does Matthew Robinson get at the end of all this? He is a janitor in a segregated school. Yeah. And it talks about her two younger brothers being better at stuff than her. I have two younger brothers who are overachievers as well. While I was ranked third in North America... My brother Jeremy was number one in the world. And while I was placing into AP chemistry as a sophomore, my brother Jordan was doing it when he was 12 years old or something, I don't know. I was a hotshot student and a hotshot skier everywhere but my own house. And I 
see what they're trying to do. I see that they're <laughs> trying to say she's very competitive. She has to win and she does not want to be overshadowed. But did you need to compare the white girl with a pretty good life that's not as good of a skier as her brother to the man that won an Olympic medal in Nazi Germany and now has to be a janitor mopping the floors in a segregated school? That was poorly planned right there. That was very poorly planned. In a different context, that would have been a great ESPN 30 for 30 episode learning those fun facts. But having the comparison to her where she's like, I also had two brothers who are relatively better at everything than me. It's like, so you think you are the same as Matthew Robinson in this scenario? They pull some shit in this movie. And this movie wasn't made that long ago. It was made in 2017. I don't know what they were thinking there. That did not age well. Yeah. So in this flashback, we also get this scene where she's at the dinner table and she's fighting with her dad. What did everyone learn in school today? Uh, I learned that Sigmund Freud was both a misogynist and an idiot, and anyone who relies on his theories of human psychology is a quack. I don't know why you'd say that. You asked me what I learned in school today. Doing some research, I did find out his most popular class that he taught at Colorado State was a human sexuality course, so there probably was a lot of Freud involved, I would imagine. But basically, she's being quite the brat. Don't disrespect me like that at the table. I wasn't disrespecting you, I was disrespecting Freud. And it's the kitchen table, not the tomb of the unknown soldier. And I'm a professional psychologist, not a quack. I never said you were a quack. Yeah, you did, and don't do it again. Don't ever use language like that again. Okay. Ignore my teachers, watch my language, and respect the kitchen table. What else do I need to do before I'm allowed to disagree with you? Make your own money so you can live in your own house and eat your own food. This is why I'm not a parent. That attitude would not fly with me. And I can understand that she feels the need to win because she feels overshadowed by her brothers, even though that was a terrible comparison to compare her to Matthew Robinson. But the problem is you don't understand why she hates her dad so much. And I saw some criticisms of that is there's just some real issues with the character development here. Yeah. After we have this little flashback, we see her and she's actually doing well at her job, but her boss is not. He has just lost a bunch of money and he comes up to her and he's super mad and she's telling him, here's what you owe. And he goes, I know what I owe. It's a tough beat, man. (laughs) You owe the game. I know what I owe the game. He's just in a bad mood and she needs to just don't speak. Yeah. And he is in such a bad mood to the point that he brings her outside and he says, I'm going to stop paying you. What do you mean? As my assistant. I'm not firing you. I'm just going to stop paying you. You get paid once a week from the game. It doesn't seem fair. But I also have a job working for you 24 hours a day. And if you have a job, you wouldn't have the game. You understand what I'm saying? I understand each of the words that you're saying, but I don't understand what you're... 24 hours a day, every day. You're going to stop paying me to do that job because I'm making too much money doing my second job. And if I say no, I'll lose both jobs because it doesn't seem fair. Business is bad right now. And she gets really upset by this because she's out doing his laundry, getting his bagels. I mean, we've seen the shit she's having to do for him. And what they don't bring up in the movie is there were other things that he did. Like she was volunteering at a children's hospital and he made her stop. And in his words, he said that you're poor. Poor people don't need to be volunteering. You can do that when you're rich. God. Yeah, these were dying children that she was going to see. And so she was not allowed to do that anymore. And yet she doesn't say his name in the book. <laughs> yeah. And so she's trying to be reasonable with him. And she's trying to say, All right, here it is. Banks are loaning you money. And they shouldn't. 
your bad risk, they know it. So the debt service on your loans is close to 20%, which is crazy. 20% is barely survivable if it's a bridge loan. But like, for instance, it's taken you 10 years to build seven houses, all of which are worth less than they were before you built them because the housing market is on a downward trajectory for the first time in the history of houses. And that's why business is doing bad, not because you're paying me $450 a week. And ironically enough, with all this money, all these people are sending at these humongous poker tournaments. This is right at that Great Recession era. People are really struggling. And she is trying to tell him this and he's not listening to her. And in the movie, she's kind of getting the sense he's going to fire her. So she's already started scouting out different hotel rooms where she can move this poker game on her own away from the Cobra Lounge slash Viper Room. And in the movie, we see a scene where it's the middle of the night and he calls her. Hello? I want you to listen to me because you need to hear this. Where are you? I need to tell you something in plain English and I need to know that you understood it. Dean. You are unimportant. Do you hear me? And you are fired. The job, the game, you're fired. And this ends with him firing her. She's not doing poker anymore. She's not being a secretary anymore. She is done. Yeah. So this is not what happens in real life. Basically, Dean had a temper on him. He was constantly firing her. He fired her all the time. But then he would call her the next day and be like, why aren't you in the office? And she would just show back up. And what happened in this instance is she hadn't been home in years. And she said, I'm going home for Christmas. And he was mad because he was like, we have poker games. And they couldn't do them if she was gone. So she leaves. And while she is gone, he calls her and says, you're done. You're fired. And when she got back, she actually got a call from some young girl who told her, I'm taking your place. I need the numbers to set up the poker game. And Molly got really upset. So in the movie, Molly gives this girl fake phone numbers and she starts up her own poker game. She invites everybody to come to the Beverly Hills Hotel and they start their game. Mm -hmm. In real life, she does give her fake numbers. But what she also does is she actually goes to another player. She explained what Dean had done to her and he did not like that. And so what they did for the first game where Molly was going to take the game away from Dean is they had this game at this guy's house. And so everybody came to his house and this guy really vouched for Molly, explaining to everybody what Dean did and that they were wanting to go ahead and start having Molly host the game at a different location from then on. And it was almost weird. It was like they kind of had a meeting whether or not they were going to go with Molly or they were going to stay with Dean. And mm. then Molly's waiting outside as they're having this meeting. And this guy that's helping her comes out and he tells her they're going to stay with you. You did it. And so she now owns the game. Mm-hmm. What's even crazier is the next day, Dean calls her and he says, get over here now. So she goes over to his office. And at first she thinks that he's going to be pissed at her. And he tells her, I'm really proud of you. Congratulations. Like he is congratulating her for taking the game. It's very bizarre. So she doesn't yeah. work for him anymore. He fired her. She took the game from him, but it's accepted and it's the way it is. And now it's hers. And during this part where Molly's setting up her business and setting up the new game, we get a clip of her meeting with a lawyer and she has this conversation with him trying to make sure what she's doing is legal. And I really liked this scene with the lawyer. And I think you agreed that it was like typical kind of sleazy lawyer advice that he says. There's a saying in my business. Don't break the law when you're breaking the law. What do you mean? No drugs, no prostitutes, no muscle to collect. I don't do anything like that. But you just said I wasn't breaking the law. You want to keep it that way because you don't want to break the law when you're breaking the law. Am I breaking the law? Not really. We're able to find out for sure, aren't we? Laws are written down. You're not taking a percentage of the pot? No. You're running a square game. 
And so he warns her against drugs, prostitutes, if any of that's there, that's illegal stuff. So even if your game's legal, you're bad. And I don't think we've explained this at this point, but Grace, can you explain what taking a rake is? Yeah, so taking a rake means that you're actually going to take a percentage of the money on the table and you're going to take it off and you get that money as the organizer. It works as security. So that way, if someone builds up this poker debt and they can't pay it back, you're not sitting there on like thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of debt. But so she wasn't taking any money from the game itself. She was taking money from the tips that people gave her after the game. So that's like the game's over. People have money. They can tip her for her service as a cocktail waitress. She's not taking money from the game. Right. And places like casinos and stuff will take a rake, but they are licensed and they go through that entire process to do that. If Molly does that, she's violating a federal law. Yeah. And the next scene is actually her talking to one of the players. And apparently he sent her some email. The next woman you send an email like that to is not going to be me. It's going to be someone else. You're playing with fire. I'm telling you that I'm in love with you and you are worried about me getting blackmailed. Oh, my God. That just makes me more into you. Lemon head. They won't need to blackmail you. They can get just as much money from TMZ. And TMZ will give them what they really want. Tell me the truth. Was mine the first love letter you've gotten from a player? It was the seventh. All digitally transmitted. You are begging for your life to be turned into a very public hell. And she is telling him, you cannot send me emails like that. Our relationship is professional. And there are things that the book addresses the movie doesn't. And I really wish they did because I think they would have humanized Molly more. And one of those things is the movie does not ever show her being in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And the reality is she was very professional, but she did have a couple of relationships and she did meet those people through the poker game. And one of them was actually the son of the owner of the Dodgers at the time. And she was with him for a long time. And he knew that she worked with this poker game. He didn't know the extent that she worked. So when this poker game started getting bigger and bigger, it was also around the time that they were getting closer and more serious. But she kept having to leave. And I mean, she would have to leave at random hours in the night or be gone for a really long time. Or the next day after the poker game was done, she has to go collect the debts. And then she has to also go pay the payments owed to all of these players. And so that really affected their relationship. They had a really sad breakup that I think really hurt her and really affected her. And it hurt him too. But they don't show anything like that in the movie. So we really just get this woman that's just married to the job. It's all business all the time. Right. And then after that, we are finally going to meet Harlan Eustace. And Harlan, like I said earlier, he wrote that other book about this whole poker ring. It was almost a response to Molly's game. And I have no fucking idea why he wanted to write this book. It did him absolutely no favors. I liked Harlan, but nobody else liked him except Player X. He played tight, didn't give a lot of action, and always got his money in good, which means he was running the odds. 5,000 to call. No. In other words, he was playing poker, and the others were gambling. And he won. Harlan was actually one of those people where Molly explains in the book, he wasn't super wealthy. He knew really wealthy people. And if something really bad happened, Player X slash Toby was backing him up just in case. He ultimately won enough money that he could be on his own. He didn't need Toby in case he had any major losses. And he was a very good poker player. He knew what he was doing. And Harlan is very good friends with Player X, or so he claims. Throughout the entire freaking book, Harlan is talking about how he and Player X or Toby Maguire are the 
Toby's best friends. In fact, he wants to make it very clear that it was actually Toby Maguire and him that started this whole poker game, not Dean, not Molly. It was them and they were in charge the whole time, to which I'm like, why do you want to take responsibility for that? Not a good time to be doing that. But something really bad is going to happen to Harlan. It's very embarrassing Mm. for him. It really hurts him. And he doesn't deny it, but he just felt the need to write the book about it anyway. We'll get to it. But Harlan's (laughs) here. This is also where we're going to meet a guy who's called Bad Brad. The next recruit was Brad Marion, who everyone called Bad Brad because he was uniquely terrible at this game. And Bad Brad is losing $100,000 every week and he'll tip Molly $5,000, she says. And she kind of talks to him like, hey, you haven't won any games. Brad, this game might not be for you. I know I'm no card shark. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not. Here are your losses after 10 weeks and you've won never. It's actually a statistical anomaly. Yeah, I know. I like playing with the guys. I don't have that many friends. Don't take my seat away. I can tip you more. No. Your tips are very generous. How about I, I get you some books? And then she figures out that he was actually going to these games and making friends with people enough that he was getting new customers for his hedge fund. Turned out Bad Brad knew what he was doing. He was getting customers. He'd drop his 100K at the game and pick up $4 million for his hedge fund. And Bad Brad's going to be important, so remember him for later. And after we see this, we are back with Charlie in his office. You see this? This is discovery. Let's see what we discovered. So here we see Charlie drawing this diagram with the different players, and we're figuring out how Molly is tied to the Russian mafia. Over here we have Peter Jasinski, Peter Antonovich, and Peter Slobo, the three Pete's. Now the three Pete's run a chain of corrupt medical clinics and have been committing insurance fraud, wire fraud, and mail fraud on an epic scale. Now over here we have the Ragnayana Gershon Organization. They're a worldwide bookmaking operation, handling hundreds of millions of dollars a year in illegal sports betting. This is where she finds out that her phone wasn't tapped, but all the people she talked to on the phone, their phones were tapped. And over here, we have the Alexander Habib organization. This is also an illegal sports betting organization, but this one financed by an art gallery owned by Shalil Habib, who everyone calls... Shelly. This is the Russian Mafia, and the three are tied together in the indictment through a poker game. And he tells her, you don't mention the Russians at all in your book, so I'm going to need you to retell that story, including the Russians part. She maintains through all of this that the Russian Mafia was not someone that she could spot as Russian Mafia, and she didn't know that they were involved in this game at all. And it also comes up that she has private information about the players of these games on hard drives from her computer. I need your hard drives. Going back how far? What do you mean? Well, I kept my hard drives when I buy a new laptop. You kid it. No, it had a record of who owed what and spreadsheets on the players. It has more than that. Every time you charge your phone by plugging it into the computer, the computer takes a record of all your text messages and emails. My laptop has a record of all text messages and emails received years ago on phones that have been smashed with an aluminum bat. I want to run forensic imaging on your hard drives. Oh, no, thanks anyway, but I'll be destroying those hard drives. Oh, you can't do that. They're evidence. And so he's like, well, now you've just told me there's all this evidence out there and you can't 
destroy the evidence because now I know it exists and I need this evidence. And she starts to freak out because she doesn't want to name names and destroy people's lives. I don't care about embarrassing text messages from boyfriends as there is not left the smallest corner of my private life that isn't available for public scrutiny. There are messages that would destroy other lives. There are messages that would end careers and obliterate families. If those text messages were to be made public, they won't be. if they were, it they would be catastrophic be. for many people. I'm a lawyer, people. I'm legally. No. Listen to me, I am legally prohibited from disclosing anything. Someone that's... leaked my last deposition to the National Enquirer, Charlie. I couldn't find anything about the hard drives themselves. But this assertion that she didn't want to name names is true. And that really played a role with her negotiations with the prosecutors, which we'll get to later. And it's true. She does not make any mention of the mob in her book at all. Mm -hmm. And I did not find anything that these hard drives were real either. I did, again, also see she only wanted to claim responsibility for herself. She didn't want to blame other people. And I think it's really hitting home the idea that she only wants to make herself be responsible for anything. Yeah. And to further paint her as a hero. In a lot of articles, I kept seeing Aaron Sorkin basically calls her a heroine and everything. And she is the hero of this story. And I guess it's because she protected people and didn't blame them in his eyes. I mean, yes, but some of that information, I'm wondering if the authorities didn't need to know that. Right. I mean, right. We don't know what she heard and what she did it, but there are a lot of very perfectly put together moments in this movie that are clearly staged. They didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. And I think the purpose of them, both by Aaron Sorkin and by Molly, were to make her look better and to save her reputation after all of this stuff went down. Right. And so after we see this, we jump to a flashback and Harlan goes full tilt. In the movie, here's what we see. What happens in real life is different. It's actually worse. But we see that Harlan is playing and one of the people at the table is Bad Brad. Remember, Bad Mm. Brad sucks at poker. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And what's happening in this scene is Harlan is reading Brad Brad completely wrong. Brad's got nothing, but his pre-flop betting made it look entirely accidentally like there was a chance he had pocket kings. 20,000. Which, if true, would give him the better full house. Brad's counting off 20,000, which means he's gonna call. And Harlan knows that if Brad's gonna call and not raise, it means he didn't have the boat. And he's betting a high two pair, probably kings and queens. But then instead of calling the bet, Brad pushes $72,000 into the pot. I'm all in. Bad Brad is making all of the signs that he has a really good hand. And Harlan is thinking, okay, I need to fold. So he does. Harlan looks at Brad. Every tell Harlan knows about, carotid artery pumping, stiff hands, Brad's doing the opposite. Brad's betting represented a huge hand by calling on the flop, check raising the turn and bombing the river. Of course, Harlan didn't know that Brad didn't know what any of that meant. So Harlan, always a good sport, said, Nice, Brad. I'm laying this down. As he tossed in what he didn't realize was the winning hand. (laughs) And then Bad Brad puts his cards over and it turns out he's got nothing. Yeah, literally nothing. Brad tosses in his cards too. And one of them flips over and Harlan sees. You didn't have pocket kings? I didn't have any kings, except the one in the middle. (laughs) You had two pair? I had one pair. The nines in the middle. And because Harlan folded, Bad Brad just won all of this money. And this is the Mm -hmm. first and only time Bad Brad has ever won, ever. 
and everyone knows how much he sucks. And Harlan is really, really good. And this is crazy to me, the psychology that goes into this. Harlan, psychologically, is just so thrown off by this. He wants to keep playing, so he does keep playing, but his mind is not there to play poker correctly. And he just keeps playing worse and worse and worse. And he's losing more and more and more money. And then what's happening is other players are calling other players saying, hey, Harlan is going full tilt, meaning he's playing really terribly and he won't stop. Come over here. You're going to win some money. Text messages were going out, letting everyone know Harlan was bleeding. Guys were coming by to play for a couple hours before work. They'd been losing to him for months. Everyone wanted a check from Harlan Eustace. So more people are showing up to play with Harlan. And Molly tries at one point to tell him, hey, you need to leave. You need to go because Harlan actually has been bragging the entire night that it's his wife's birthday and he's playing this beautiful party for her and he's just going to play one game and then he's going to leave. But now he will not leave. You're on tilt. Everybody knows it. You're playing without the weapons you need to win. You're right. All right, thank you. Just give me 500000 I just got to get back to even. That should be the second line of every gambler's obit. Mr. Feldstein died while trying to get back to even. Harlan never did, and he never got to his wife's birthday party. Harlan loses a million dollars that night. Once he loses that, he tells Molly, I don't have that money to pay it back to you. He has missed his wife's party. His wife does not know where he is. And so she says, I will let you work that debt off. She's going to be very fair to him. Right. But what happens is he comes back the next day. He has the money to pay her and it's never spoken of again. And she's like, what the heck is this? Now, before I explain what has happened, I'm going to go back and say what really happened to Harlan. Mm -hmm. He did really lose a million dollars. He did really go full tilt. He did really miss his wife's birthday party. It was not bad Brad that did this to him. It was his best buddy, Toby Maguire slash Player X. They both had been losing pretty frequently. So they both were really trying to win. Mm hmm. And what Toby Maguire did is what he always did, again, in that way that's it's not not allowed, but it's in poor taste. Toby wins everything and he cashes out. So Harlan has not only been losing previously, he's lost a ton of money to Toby. And I can't mm-hmm. stress enough that, again, I don't know why Harlan wrote this book, because it is basically him worshiping Toby Maguire, talking about how they are such good friends, how they've always played poker together. And when Harlan comes back the next day and he has the money completely paid and ready to go for Molly, she's like, like, where did you get this? And she learns that Player X slash Toby Maguire said, I'll loan you back this money for this absolutely crappy loan where Toby Maguire will get at least 50% of all of Harlan's winnings mm-hmm. and he will suffer no losses that Harlan suffers until this debt is paid off. And the way Molly Bloom describes it is he could get a better deal off the street. And in the book, Molly thinks Toby did not like that Harlan got out of having him as a safety net and he wanted mm-hmm. to bring him back into his control. And that is why he did this. And so it's at this point in the movie that we see Player X and Molly talking to each other. And she is pissed at him for doing this and says, you cannot do that again. Mm -hmm. And it becomes clear that the balance of power between Player X and Molly is starting to falter. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest winner is? Look, it's you. What are you taking home? 10,000 a night now? That is my business. Literally. Between you, the dealers, and the servers, you're taking a lot of money out of this game. Not as much as I'm bringing to it. That 10000 is 10000 that doesn't go in my pocket. Again, my money... Your money is my money. Is it? I think we should talk about capping your tips. 
Player X makes it very clear that he is the one in charge of this game. Molly is not. And it's at this point, after we see this friction, we see Molly driving to the next game. It was the next Tuesday, game night. He waited until he knew I'd be on the way to the hotel and then sent me a text. It said, we're playing at Dave's tonight. No need to show up. And in her voiceover, she says, he knew I would be in the car on my way to the poker game. Right. Now, in reality, what happened was the game was going well, but she was very aware that Toby was getting more irritated with her. He had been making complaints similar to how Dean had earlier in the movie that he wanted to cap her tips. And they don't have this in the movie. But and this is insane. I cannot believe this is a true story. But Harlan says this is true, too. There is a moment one day when Toby McGuire is cashing out. He takes a chip. It's a thousand dollar chip. And he puts it in front of Molly and says, here you go. And she says, oh, thank you. And he pulls it back from her before she can take it. And he says, I will only give this to you if you do something for me. And everyone's getting kind of quiet. Like, what is he doing? And she's like, okay. And he goes, bark like a seal. Get on the table and bark like a seal. And I'll give you this chip. And I mean, everyone's looking at him like, what the fuck? Yeah. And she's like, no, keep your chip. And so he goes, no, you don't want it. And ultimately what he does, and this is the worst part, he convinces another player to have the game at his house. And it's fully Toby running this and making them do it Mm -hmm. at this other guy's house, but he's making it seem like someone else doesn't like her. Mm. And he has the personal secretary call her and says, they're going to be doing the game over at this other guy's. You don't need to come. We'll get the dealer to come. We'll get all the girls to be here. Just you. You don't need to come. And in the movie, we see her sitting in her car and she gets a phone call. And he really did make that phone call to her after that first game where they decided to go to the other house instead of coming to Molly to play poker. Mm -hmm. He called her in that exact same way and just was laughing on the phone and said, you're so fucked. And just like that, Molly has lost the game to Toby Small Penis McGuire. And she does not take this as well as Dean took it. She is not happy for Toby Maguire. She goes into a depression. It had to end sometime. I just thought it would be on my time. The game had given me an identity, respect, and a defined place in a world that was inaccessible. And in one irrational heartbeat, it was taken away. I was irrelevant and forgotten overnight. And this is also another thing they sort of get into in the movie, but in the book much more, just how tied to that game she was. Her life was that game. She did not know what to do with herself for that month Mm -hmm. that she did not have a game. Yeah. And she's obviously, rightly so, she's very, very upset because she's been fucked over by these guys who stole the game. But remember, Molly also stole the game. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so she makes the decision to go to therapy. And she is in that therapy waiting room for all of two seconds. And then we hear the voiceover talking. It was that there weren't any rules. These power moves weren't framed by right and wrong. Just ego and vanity. Selfish whims with no regard for consequence. No fairness, no justice. And that giggling, cackling call from Player X. You are so I couldn't lose to that green-screened little shit, and I didn't want a therapist to make me feel okay about it. You know what makes you feel okay about losing? Winning. I got on a plane to New York. 
And she has now decided, I kind of don't like, I don't like this in that she walks out of the waiting room. She says, I'm not going to get anywhere by just talking my feelings out. I'm going to get somewhere by doing something. To which I was like, Molly, I really think you would benefit with some therapy. <laughs> yeah. I very much appreciate your motivation here, but you seem like you yeah. got some stuff going on in there. But what she does is she decides that she is going to go where the big money is. And she is done with LA. She's going to New York. So after this scene, we get a flash to the present where she's in Charlie's office. And this is a scene where we're going to start talking about this whole issue of Charlie arguing that she played a minor role in the operation and trying to get her a minor role reduction. What's a minor role reduction? I'm going to argue to the prosecutor that you're uh, an employee that was hired and fired by the players. Not a chance. I think we got a good chance. No, not a chance. I'm letting you make that argument. Why not? It's not true. Let me explain how the point system works. I know how it works. Points correspond with the prosecutor's sentencing recommendation. You try to get a point reduction based on a variety of factors, including, say, prior criminal history, which I don't have, or whether the defendant played a minor role, which I certainly did not. This part's very frustrating to me. I'll get into it more later. But basically, Molly's saying, no, you shouldn't argue that because this was my business. I built it from scratch, more or less. She ran the whole thing. She had employees who she hired and fired in 1099, so she was not a minor role. And he's telling her, if you don't get the minor role reduction, you could be in prison for a long time. You won't be able to have kids, all this stuff. And she's just like, no, I built this thing and I wasn't a minor role and don't put me down like that. Yeah, the movie is making it extremely clear that was her business. And by saying, oh, I was just a cocktail waitress, if she ever tries to do anything ever again with her life, in the event she was not in prison, she's not going to have anything to stand on to say I was a businesswoman. Yeah. This is also the scene where he starts asking her questions about the book. Some of those questions are that he notes that she doesn't mention any use of the drugs in her book, but these games were going on for like three days at a time. Once you're in New York... Talk about games lasting all night, two nights, being up for days, but you don't mention drugs. There were drugs. I'm two years clean. And so then she admits that she was on all types of drugs, but she's been clean and sober. And then he asked her if she was able to get an advance on the book. He's trying to figure out like why she doesn't have any money to pay him. And what was the advance on the book? And she says that it depends. There were people who were willing to offer her $1.5 million if she named names, but she didn't want to name everybody's name. And then he notes that she did name some people's names in the book. And he's trying to figure out why she named those names. Ah, I just got it. Showing up everywhere. I couldn't figure out why you named some people but not others. I thought that maybe some people paid you. You were wrong, but doesn't matter. No, the only people you named in that book were the ones that were already named in the Bad Brad Marion deposition. Then we finally realized that those names were already public because Bad Brad has a deposition. Why does Bad Brad have a deposition? We'll get into a little bit later. But basically, the only names that she mentions in her book were names that had already come out from Brad. So with that said, since she would only name those names, she only got a book advance of $35,000. After we see this, she's going to New York. And I think a good way of explaining why Molly went out there is because in LA, you had the actors and the directors. But in New York, you had the people paying to make those movies. So that was where the big money was. And she sets up and meets with hotels over there. She gets all new stuff. She gets all new girls to work for her. And in the movie, they are like these playmates that also happen to have the IQ of Albert Einstein. Like they're all yeah. incredibly smart. These weren't just any playmates. Jessie was a Puerto Rican knockout who grew up working in card rooms and was a good player herself. I could stake her 
infiltrate other games and poach their big ticket players. Shelby could write code and run more thorough background checks in the TSA. Winston was the daughter of an American diplomat. She's lived in nine different countries and had the email addresses of half the Saudi royal family. She did not mm-hmm. have genius playmates. She did bring her dealer with her. Her dealer's name was B. And we also see her showing these new girls in New York City how to recruit. And she's getting some new celebrities that she didn't have in L.A. before. Don't say his name out loud. Write it on a cocktail napkin. Crumple the napkin up. Put it in a glass of water so they can see the ink dissolve. That's really necessary? No, it's not at all necessary. When do we tell them the game's going to start? Tell them it's been happening once a week for about six months at a location you won't disclose right now. There's a pretty long waiting list for a chair, but Molly's here somewhere and I'll introduce you to her. And at this point, too, her buy-ins are enormous. They're like $250,000 just to buy into these games. They are huge, yeah. huge games. At the end of that year, I reported an income of $4,773,000. Every square inch of it legal and on the books. I was the biggest game runner in the world. All tips. I still hadn't taken a rake, and I still hadn't accidentally recruited members of a Russian crime syndicate. However, with these really high-stakes games, Molly is starting to run into a problem. Mm -hmm. The amount of money is getting so high that if even one person can't pay, the entire game is going to bust. Molly is going to lose her poker game. And she is having a discussion with her dealer, and B is telling her, Your exposure is crazy. It's not if, it's when. You're going to get blown up. Your risk is nuts. If I took a rake, this game would no longer be legal. And if you can't cover, this game will no longer exist. You're the bank now. You're guaranteeing the game. And the other problem is Molly is not thinking as clearly as she used to because she is running these poker games and she has to watch the whole time. And she talks about in the book how she tried to have other people watch the game and monitor for her so she didn't Mm -hmm. have to be at every single one and it didn't work. It would fall apart. She had to be there because these Mm -hmm. poker players did not take these other people as seriously as her. And so the dealer is telling her, if you see a hand you don't want to carry, just look at me, flash me a number. And I'll take it off the table. Most runners cap it at 5%. And then in the very next scene. Two weeks later, around 2 a.m., there was a pot that was up to 1.3 million pre-flop. Call. With five players still in. My hope was that the flop would chase four of them off. 200,000. Raise 100,000. 300,000 to you, sir. Call. There was now 2.1 million on the table. It's really tense. You see Molly watching this poker game go on and we see the dealer almost like they're catty corner to each other. And they're both looking at each other as this game is going on and they both see the numbers are getting too high. 300,000 to you, sir. Plus 200. 2.6 million. Three million. She was right. I was extending credit, big numbers. And it's not like Harlan Eustace hadn't already put the fear of God into me. If I couldn't pay one time, that'd be the end of the game. I was the house. And Molly explains that it was so fast, she hardly even realized she was doing it, but she flashes a number at B, at her dealer. That's how quickly I made the decision. And just as quickly, B calculated 2% of the pot and took it off the table. That was it. 
I just taken a rake in violation of U.S. Criminal Code 1955. And immediately that was when her poker game went from being don't break the law when you're breaking the law to you are 1000% breaking the law. Right. And around this time is when we're going to meet Douglas Downey. Yes. So then comes in this just bumbling idiot. And (laughs) his name is Douglas Downey. And he was a guy that came to her New York game. Downey was a drunk and he'd stay after the game and hang out while I did the books. He was hard to understand when he was drunk and his conversation openers would always sound like the title of a detective novel. Victim of circumstance. And it is through Douglas Downey that Molly's bringing in other players from the Brooklyn game. And he'd talk about another game he played in. It was the Brooklyn game. The Brighton Beach game where they played all night and all day. The game that was populated by Russians. I'm the only Irish guy they'll let play. Mal, these are the nicest guys I've ever met. Then one night, Douglas Downey lost 80000 at my game and didn't have it. Yeah, so he would talk about the Brooklyn game and say that it's all these Russian guys. But to her, that didn't mean that they were mob or mafia, just that they are Russian. But in real life, this is where the mafia is going to come in. Mm -hmm. And so one night, Douglas Downey loses $80,000 at Molly's game, and he doesn't have it. And so she makes a negotiation with him, even though now she's taking a break, but she wants her game to grow. So she says, okay, you know what? If you can't pay it, bring some of those players from the Brooklyn game, and I'll give you a cut to pay down the bet. And the Russians make a fucking entrance. We've got four Russians that come to the game with Douglas Downey. They are Abilia, Alexia, Mike, and Shelly. Mike was the first one to arrive. I'm Jesse. I'm my dad. Mike owned a chain of medical clinics and had already posted with a wire transfer. Next were the Gershon brothers, Ilya and Alexi. They were in the business of exporting steel to China. Alexi brought a quarter of a million dollars in cash in a backpack. And Shelly is my favorite because Shelly, he does not have any cash on hand to buy into the game, but he does have an authentic, most definitely stolen, very rare painting. (laughs) And he brings it in with some bodyguards that are armed. That is an authentic Monet. Grabbed it right off the wall. You came over here carrying a Monet. I was driven and I have security outside the door. Okay, Shelly, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get this, what, four? Seven. Seven million dollar painting out of here right now. And your, I assume, armed sure. security can't stand in front of the door. Fix this up, come on back, and I'll extend you credit tonight up to one and a half. But she lets him in. She gives him credit, and the Russians are in now. As advertised, they played loose, gave action, lost to the regulars, and settled right away. People have asked, Wasn't there any way to tell that some of the players at your game are connected to one of the darkest, deadliest, and far-reaching organized crime syndicates in the world? No, there wasn't. And then we're going to flash once again to Charlie's office. He comes in and tells her that she's not getting the minor role reduction. So what now? The government is expressing an interest in you being a cooperating witness. You don't say. Molly. Who could have possibly seen that coming? Let's have the conversation. It'll be short because I don't know anything at all that can help them. You don't know anything that can help them convict the Russians, but you know things that can help. This is also a scene where we're going to get into more daddy issues. So Charlie has been giving his daughter all these assignments. The book she was reading in the waiting room when Molly first came into his office. Now the daughter comes into his office with an essay she wrote. What does he have you doing now? An essay on three poems with what he believes are a common theme. Not an essay, two paragraphs. Which three poems? Close, Rush, and Walls. Oh, I know those. What's the common theme? Things are one-word titles. 
and he asks Molly if she thinks he's being too hard on her. And she's like, whatever you're doing with her, double it. My father was hard on me, as if she is the perfect example of a successful daughter. And then that's when we kind of get into more of her relationship with her dad. Where's your father in all this? You mean physically? He's in Colorado. Your parents still together? No. You and your father close? No. Charlie asks, was your dad really hard on you? And she gives this line of, You know how many girls at the Olympics have demanding fathers? All of them. That's right. I was tough on him. What do you mean? Fathers don't care. And start fights with them. Why? And then we see this flashback of her mom talking on the phone, presumably talking to her dad. You were lying! Why would I start fights with them? Yeah. I put you through grad school. <laughs> I raised the kids. I did every, got everything. No. No, you listen to me. All you do is cheat on me and lie to me and lie to the kids. You lie to your wife and you lie to your kids. I don't know. I tried to look into if he actually cheated on Molly's mom, and I couldn't find anything. They're pretty private people, the parents themselves. I would say they don't have much of a public persona besides like his work as a professor. What I did find is that he is remarried to someone who is not Molly's mom. So something didn't work out. But when that didn't work out, I have no idea. And I mean, it's important to note, Molly does not mention any issues with her father in the book, like at all. Yeah. Does she talk about her competitive nature? Yes. Does she talk about feeling overshadowed by her brothers? Yes. And it could have just been that at the time she wrote the book, she wasn't ready to deal with those feelings. Like, I guess she was when the movie was made. But I get the sense that a lot of these things with her father are scripted. Yeah. And you notice that a lot of the things with her father come up in these scenes with Idris Elba. And we know that his character, Charlie, is not a real person. So it's just like Aaron Sorkin's way of humanizing her. But it's in a way that I hate because it's just like, oh, another woman with daddy issues. Yeah, exactly. So, anywho, now we're going to flash to Bad Brad. We told you to remember Bad Brad was going to come up. Yep. We are finally going to figure out where Molly got these names that she named in her book. And we mentioned earlier that it had something to do with Bad Brad, that Bad Brad had a deposition going on. So let's talk about what happened to him. So Bad Brad, he kept coming to play poker for the purpose of gaining clients, but he's gotten himself into a Ponzi scheme. And he gets caught. It turns out his $700 million hedge fund wasn't what you would call real. It was a Ponzi scheme. He'd been falsely reporting profits for years. He wasn't even registered with the SEC. With the money given to him by friends and family and players at the game, he bought several Malibu beach houses, an airplane hangar full of cars, another one with an airplane, and the life he wanted. When he was arrested, he had $740 in the bank. 
and he gets criminally charged for this. But also, there are several civil suits that are going on as well. Brad cooperated with the FBI and gave them hours of testimony on a range of subjects, including how three years earlier he lost $5.2 million in an underground celebrity poker game that was run by a girl named Molly Bloom. His story was that I'd induced him to play in a high-stakes game. I just wanted to introduce you to Brad. And, and that due to my enabling, he'd become a gambling addict. And the reason there are civil suits going on is because the logic of these victims of Bad Brad, his clients that have lost money to him in this Ponzi scheme, is that he used their money to enter into this poker game. And if it was illegal, then that means that any transactions in that game were void. So really, anybody that won money from him in those games actually owe that money back to these victims. So all those celebrities, they are suing all of them because they want their money back that Brad lost. So this comes up in Brad's deposition. Brad names those names. Mm -hmm. And they also subpoena Molly. Can you confirm the names on the list all played poker with Brad Marion? This list was provided to you by Brad Marion. I just need you to confirm for the record that your game included but was not limited to the players. I understand. What I'm trying to get on the record is that I'm not the one who provided the list. These names were provided by Brad Marion. So under oath. Yes, I can confirm the list is accurate. And it's the same thing we've been getting from her. She doesn't want to name names. What she does is they push a piece of paper over to her and there's a list of people on it. And they say, were these the people in your poker game? And she wants to be very clear that these are people that Brad said the names of. She did not say the names of those people. And when she looks at the list, she says that is accurate and pushes Mm -hmm. it back. So that's how Molly got the names and why she knew that those were okay to say. And she will not mention anymore. The L.A. players and I were given a choice. Testify against each other in open court or help make restitution to the victims of Brad's Ponzi scheme. I wrote the government a check for $500,000. And somewhere in an FBI field office in New York, someone was pinning my picture to a wall. And on top of all of that, things are getting more and more dangerous in New York. Yeah. So Molly is leaving a poker game and Molly has a driver that she uses all the time and she trusts him and she knows him. And one day when he's driving her home, he says that he knows some people that might want to become involved in her game. Pat asked me a favor. He said there were a couple of hedge fund guys in New Jersey who wanted to play and he could score points with them if he was able to get them a meeting with me. I said sure and set the meeting for 5 p.m. on a Thursday at the Four Seasons Bar knowing that if they were legit, they'd recognize someone in the crowd at happy hour at the Four Seasons right after the closing bell. It turns out I didn't need to be that clever. These weren't finance guys. They were from the cast of Jersey Boys. And the way Molly describes them when they walk in is they are just wearing shushkovitz, like the... Sorry, that's what Blosh calls it. You know, the mobsters wear the, like, velvet tracksuits. Oh my god, I need to learn that word. Shushkovitz. Like, think of Tony Soprano when he's... I know exactly what you mean, but I've never heard that explanation. And you know why? It's because it's not velvet. It's like that because it makes the shush, shush, shush noise. Oh, the little, like, yeah, the tracksuit things. Yeah. So they walk in in their shushkovits and they are mob city. I had a good hunch what they wanted and I was going to have to shut down this meeting quickly, but without being rude to Joey Bag of Donuts and Secaucus Sal. And for some reason, one of them orders an apple martini. Mm -hmm. So they're these super big, super bald, tough guys with these apple martinis. And they say they want to be partners. Pat said you guys might be interested in a game. We want to partner with you. 
We've talked to Tootie, Will. Teddy Chin. Teddy Chin. We do a little work with them, too. We can make your life easier. Nobody will fuck with you. Nobody will stuff you. And she says to them, that is not what I'm about. I am not doing that. This is friendly poker in the exact same way that she is in the movie. She buys their drinks and she leaves. And then it's around Christmas time. So the poker games are going to take off for two weeks. And she has just left her last game. She's coming into her apartment. There's a doorman. And in the movie, she just sees him, says hello, asks, are there any packages? He says, no, I don't think so. And she goes up. In reality, what happens is she talks to the doorman. She's got some bags and stuff. So he helps her up to her room and then he says I think you have a package I'm gonna go downstairs and get it for you and I'll be right back up so she's expecting him to come back so while she is waiting for him she gets a knock at the door and both in the movie and in real life she opens the door and it is some big old guy and he just punches her straight in the face he is beating the crap out of her uh, sorry you're in the wrong <laughs> wait okay. hold on a second I have <laughs> <laughs> not a sound and he's got a gun to her face. He makes her open her mouth and he puts the gun in her mouth. And at some point, she's able to muster up and say, I got a safe of stuff. I've got money. You got me? I have money. It's all cash. Where? It's safe. Where is it? And he's fully there just to beat her up and scare her. But she thought she was going to die. And she was like, nobody's going to come up here and get me. Like, she didn't know if something had happened to the package guy. Mm-hmm. She takes him back to her closet. She gives him all of her money. She gives him a bunch of jewelry. And he says, It wasn't an offer they made. It wasn't a suggestion. This will be your only reminder. And in the movie, he tells her that they will be in touch. And what actually happened is he said, we will be in touch. And she does get a call from them again. And she does speak to them. And they are extremely aware that her face is fucked up. So they say, we feel like you might need to rest, but we will call you in a couple weeks and we will meet up. In the movie, that doesn't happen. It's just, we'll be in touch. And she stays in her apartment for two weeks, never leaves, doesn't talk to anybody. She's terrified. When the guy was in her house, he had mentioned that he knew where her mom lived and that scared her. Mm-hmm. And after those two weeks, she kept expecting this phone call and it never came. After 10 days, I opened my front door for the first time. People were coming back into town after New Year's in Cabo and St. Bart's in South Beach. My phone was blowing up with when's the next game, but nothing from John G. And then right there on the front page of the New York Times from eight days ago, nearly 125 arrested in sweeping mob roundup. And finally, she saw that there was a big mob roundup in New York City and they had arrested a bunch of people in the mob. And so presumably the priority to become involved in her poker game just kind of went out the window because all the head guys got arrested. Mm -hmm. And so she Mm -hmm. dodges that bullet, but things are not going to get better for her. After we see this, she's getting ready to start up her poker games again. She is literally getting ready to go. And in the movie, she gets a phone call from Douglas Downey. I'm on my way, Doug. Wait, Molly, wait. I'm hiding in the bathroom. I just, I, I need you to believe me, okay? I just... Who's bathroom? I need you to believe me because I, at the suite at the plaza, 
Why are you hiding in the bathroom? I would never tell them anything about you. I said, guys, you want me to go further? You want me to go other places? I'll do it. But nothing about Molly. She can't be touched. Just the Russians. And basically, fucking Douglas Downey was an informant. And the FBI has raided her game. I was cited for securities fraud. It was scrubbed from my record. That's why you don't know. Did you say securities fraud? I would never help them build a case against you. I would never give them anything against you. I'd commit perjury before I did that. It was such bullshit. It was 2006. If you'd had an arrest, I'd have known. It was bullshit. Doug. I told him, I'll go further. I'll go other places. But not you. I love you. And so she grabs as much stuff as she can from her apartment and she runs downstairs and she gets in the car and calls her lawyer and she is driving to the airport like she's getting the hell out of town. And actually in the movie, she does get out. She leaves. She goes and lives with her mom. In real life, she actually calls her lawyer and says, do I need to leave? Like, what is going on? And he said, you can wait till tomorrow. You don't need to go now, but let's see what happens. And she waited till the next day. She got a flight. She left. She went and stayed with her mom for a little bit and she did not do any more poker games after that in the movie this is the time where she writes her book and she will eventually move to los angeles and she will start optioning the book and then it's about two years later that we circle back to that moment at the very beginning of the movie where she gets arrested right so now that we've caught the timeline up, Molly and Charlie are going to go have a meeting with the prosecutors in this case. I hate these fucking prosecutors. They remind me of prosecutors I've dealt with. They're fucking assholes. I just want to mention that she also voluntarily checked herself into 28-day rehab and has been sober and clean for two years. I don't care. Were the women that work for you call girls? No, sir. They never exchanged sex for money? No. Have you ever exchanged sex for money? No. I think he was talking to me. I meant, no, she's not answering that question. The purpose of this meeting I is... I know. The purpose of this meeting... We're off the record. We're not off the record. You see a stronographer in here. We're off the record in as much as there is no record, but you're free to use the information you're given, and we're not giving the information for free. I hate it when prosecutors want to take people down for the purpose of taking them down. I'm sorry, I... Yeah. Not all prosecutors are like that. And we'll find out that the real prosecutors in the case weren't like this either, but for the drama. They yeah, are. they're not assholes in the real life, so... <laughs> But they are reading a transcript of some recorded stuff that happened in her poker game. And they keep talking about how all of the Russians are speaking to each other. And they are saying, we need to get Molly. And they are trying to connect that to Molly Bloom. Like, she is a part of this thing. She is fully in. And Mike Davidoff's phone intercepts alone. Just Davidoff, your name comes up 19 times. We need Molly. Get Molly. Bring Molly. It strongly suggests you're important to his business, so it's hard for me to believe that someone with your savvy and obvious intellect... I'm talking about the drug. Get Molly, bring Molly. We need Molly. It's... They're talking about the drug ecstasy. So the prosecutors here have fully screwed up. They are not talking about Molly the human being. They are talking about Molly the drug. Yeah. And I actually have a great story about this. Can I please tell it? Yes. Okay, when I was an intern, we had a guy that had a probation violation. So he was in jail. He was coming to talk to the judge. Mm -hmm. And I was just an intern. So I was just watching. But this was a very old school judge. She was very, very strict. She was no nonsense at all. And she looks at him and she says, have you done any drugs lately? If I drug test you, are you going to be positive? And he says, well, I've done a little Molly. And she goes, who's Molly? (laughs) And... Everybody kind of stops and looks at each other because they think she's kidding. Like, this lady was old. 
and she's retired <laughs> since. And the prosecutor just goes, um, Judge, that is a that's a recreational drug. Um, and she's like, well, is it serious? Like she had no clue what it was. It was quite fantastic. Anyway, it was the same confusion, but a little bit different. And this is fantastic, too, because basically their entire case tying Molly to the mob has completely fallen apart. But the thing is, they have taken all of Molly's money. And even Mm -hmm. now that they know they've completely screwed their case up, they are still saying that they're going to pursue prison time if she doesn't give them more information on other people. Mm -hmm. And Charlie, rightfully so, just loses it. This woman does not belong in a RICO indictment. Are you out of your minds? She does not belong in a mob indictment. She raked a game, that's it, for seven months, two years ago. And why? Because she was giving credit in the millions and she didn't want to use muscle to collect. He is like, she is not involved with these other people and you know it now. You very clearly know it now. She ran a poker game that was borderline illegal. And he goes off on them in the way that you wish so badly sometimes you could yell at a prosecutor, mm-hmm. but you can't because manners. It doesn't get you far. Yeah. yeah. So the DA wants to talk to Charlie alone. And so Charlie says, Molly, go get dinner for an hour and meet me back at the office. And Molly decides she's going to go ice skating. (laughs) And she goes up to the girl selling the skates. And she's like, I don't have any money, but I have $800 gloves. Hi, I would like to rent a pair of skates, size 7, but I don't have any money. These are $800 leather Chanel gloves. I'll trade you. I would absolutely think she was crazy. And I would be like, no, you cannot. But this girl (laughs) does not want to deal with it. And she just gives this crazy lady her skates. And so she is ice skating. And it's the stupid thing where she's not going in the right direction as everybody else. And she's going way too fast. And all the security ice men, which I did not know that existed. (laughs) They're chasing her, telling her, ma'am, stop. You must stop. Hey, slow down. Hey, miss, slow down. Catch me. Come on, catch me! And out of fucking nowhere, no context whatsoever as to how he got there, there is her father, Larry Bloom, on the side of the (laughs) ice rink being like, Molly, hey, what is going on? Bend your knees. Dad? Like, there's no reason for him to be there. She's not about to have court. He does not live there. He's just there. And so she crashes and falls and they take her skates away. And then we have this whole little scene where it is just the final father to daughter moment. All right, we're going to do three years of therapy in three minutes. How? I'm going to do what patients have been begging therapists to do for 100 years. I'm just going to give you the answers. And it is at this moment that we finally get down to the reason why Molly is the way she is. And she is so angry because when she was like five years old, she saw her dad cheating on her mom. I knew you knew. You knew I knew what? What do you um, think about the following concepts? Just going to run them by you. Marriage. It is a trap. And I was cheating on mom. I knew you knew. It is a joke. No, I didn't know it until I was 20. People. I don't trust people. No, you'd known since you were five. You saw me in my car and you really didn't know what you saw. 
Yeah, because he said that he knew she knew. And so the way he reacted to that shame was to seem to love her less than her brothers. And she reacted by having, quote unquote, seething contempt for him. Just all the daddy issues. This is the thing that makes her understand who she is as a person. This stupid moment that didn't happen. Yeah. Why couldn't we have her like overcoming her drug addiction? Why couldn't we have her dealing with her relationships? Kevin Costner has shown up to just tell her, oh, by the way, you were having all those anger issues because I cheated on your mom. (laughs) But it's okay now. Now you know and I love you and so go be good. Yeah, that's what this was. And lots of the critics of this movie, like this was what did the movie in was the three minutes of therapy. Yeah. So then remember, she's just on her little dinner break before she's got to go meet back with Charlie. So we're going to go back to Charlie's office here. And he basically tells her that she is a role model. He sees that now. And that the only deal that the prosecutors are willing to offer her is she has to hand over the hard drives and they would give her complete immunity and all her money back plus interest, which would be over $5 million. Is that why they took it in the first place? So they could offer it back to me? Yeah. For what it's worth, if we went to trial, you would have to hand over the forensic image and any discoveries. But that's different than voluntarily handing it over. Sure, but it's not really voluntary anymore when the alternative is prison. And that's what they're going to recommend, 42 months. And so they kind of go through the scenarios. He says, if we go to trial, you'll have to give over the hard drives anyway. And she says, yeah, but then I'd have to. It's not like me choosing to do it. So I'm not going to do it. And she's going to plea. And he's explained to her she's going to be a target in prison. Careers will be ruined. Families, wives, lives hey, on you know, both when, when a rich guy goes to jail, he spreads his money around. His, his lawyer knows how to take care of that. He spreads his money around. You don't have any. The composition of female inmates in federal prison, they did not commit financial crimes. They're drug dealers. They get raped by prison guards. You, you will not be anonymous, Molly. You will be a target. And this is where we get the big crucible moment where all she has left is her name. You're not saying no. I was named after my great-grandmother. I don't care. Molly. We will stay here all night until you understand. Until you understand nobody gives a shit about your good name. I do. Why? Because, because, tell me why, because it's all I have left. That's why she won't give the hard drives. She won't be that person who gives up other people because it will sully her name. And this, yeah, so this is a tie back to the crucible in that in the crucible, basically Daniel Day Lewis, because I did not read the book right before he is going to admit to witchcraft, just loses it and says, no, let me keep my name. I will not admit to this thing I didn't do. So he's not going to live. He's going to get hung. But this is the tie-in to this silly movie. Yeah. And at this point, you might be thinking, I don't know why this is so silly. I mean, she's saying she doesn't want to give up other people. It's their private lives. They have nothing to do with this. Hold that thought. We'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. So Charlie asks her if she's super sure she wants to plead guilty. And she says, yep, super sure. And we're going to go to the courtroom. So this effectively means she's taking a prison sentence. And federal court might be different than state court. I've only done state court. But here's something I want to explain. When you enter a plea of guilty, it's almost always an agreed plea. So you have signed all the papers before. You know that in exchange for your plea of guilty, you are going to have to do X, Y, and Z, whether that is a prison sentence or probation or any classes. You know exactly what you're doing beforehand. And in the movie, she is entering her 
plea. Do you understand that you are charged in count 20 with operating an illegal gambling business in violation of Title 18, United States Code Sections 1955 and 2? Yes, I understand. Understanding everything you've been told, do you now wish to enter a plea? Yes, sir. How do you plead to the charge? Guilty, Your Honor. But surprisingly, and by some miracle, this judge does not like what they have offered her after he looks at everything. And he says he will not accept this plea of guilty from her. Based on all available information, this court manifestly disagrees with the government's sentencing recommendation. This courthouse is located within spitting distance of Wall Street. I know this from my personal experience trying to spit at it. The men and women who work there will commit more serious crimes by lunchtime today than the defendant has committed in this indictment. And this is a thing. A judge can bust the plea, but what they do is they will tell the defense attorney and the prosecutors, go back, see if you can renegotiate something else that I would accept that I would think is in the interest of justice. Because the reason they're not accepting that is they don't think it's in the interest of justice for one whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And you come back to him. And if you can't come to an agreement, then you set it for trial. But what this judge does is he just makes up his own sentence. Ms. Bloom, this court sentences you to 200 hours of community service. One year of supervised probation, drug testing, and a $200,000 fine. This case is adjourned. And I've never seen that unless you're going open. He also takes this opportunity to go on a short rant about how the people working on Wall Street are committing more heinous crimes than anything Molly Bloom has done, which I think is just total, like, Sorkin felt the need to get that out there or something. Yes, he did. (laughs) The thing is, in real life, Molly Bloom got a minor role reduction and the prosecutors recommended to the judge that she get probation and community service and a fine because the prosecutors saw that she had a minor role in this whole operation. So all of this business about fighting the minor role because she wasn't a minor role and saving her name and all this stuff, this was just... This is just movie bullshit. Like, she fully took the deal that was going to benefit her, which was the minor role. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, she claimed in real life that they would basically drop the charges and give her her money back if she gave the names. And she would not do that. But then she agreed to the minor role reduction. But the prosecutors recommended probation. They didn't recommend the jail time. Yeah. And then there's just the ending. And we're going to flash back one more time to make you confused. And we're going all the way back to the ski situation where she crashed on the mountain. Remember that? We're back at that. She is on the ground in the snow, might have broken her back to pieces. Everyone runs up to her. Basically, what happens is she kind of wakes up. She's okay, And she stands up and she walks away with her dignity. Mm -hmm. To which I was like, I wouldn't let her move. I'd be really worried about her neck. Yeah, I think any like good medical person there would say, no, you're not trying to stand up. But she stands up. And so that's really the end of the movie. She is, serves her probation. She does a bunch of community service. She is not allowed to go to Canada anymore. We don't know why, but she's not allowed to. Since then, like we mentioned earlier, she did get married. She's got an Instagram. She was on a lot of talk shows and did a lot of interviews around the time the book and the movie came out. Now, keep in mind, the book, it was published after she was sentenced. Yeah. So the book actually didn't come out until after she was sentenced because when the judge was sentencing her, he had concerns about the book. And he said, like, he actually brought up when I read the book, I'm not going to be like upset about things. And you actually do show contrition for your actions, right? And she's like, yes, of course. And then the book comes out afterwards. 
And I found it interesting that for how much I had a lot of issues with this movie, and I just Mm -hmm. don't know how I feel about it, critics gave it a lot of positive reviews. The closest thing to a negative review that I found was just saying that the movie falters in fleshing out its characters, which it definitely does. And it ultimately was nominated for a Best Adapted Screenplay Academy Award and a BAFTA Award. And Jessica Chastain was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress. And then Molly Bloom herself loves the movie. She could not talk about it enough. She (sighs) thought she looked great. I think it worked as she intended as a good stepping stone for her career. Like I've seen her say that in articles. This is a step to move on to the next thing. I know you can hire her to give speeches at conferences and stuff like that. So it kind of gets her into people's minds more. Because like I didn't know anything about Molly Bloom before seeing Molly's Game was on Netflix. Yeah. And this is another movie like The Frozen Ground where it didn't do great when it came out, but Netflix brought it back up and it became very popular because of Netflix. Mm -hmm. Now, Molly's dad said it was a little hard to see himself and his dad role when he watched this. He did want to point out that he thought there were some creative liberties that (laughs) when you make a two hour and 20 minute movie, you do have to only take snippets from decades and lifetimes, which I don't think the dad's role was so much of an important thing as we have talked about. But he said that he did demand excellence and he understands there's liberties, but he was good with it. And I did listen to a couple of podcasts that talked about the movie and people were very excited for Aaron Sorkin to be directing a movie for the first time. He'd written several obviously but never directed and it was a mixed bag on the movie in general and people generally were okay with too disappointed in him being the director it would have been better if somebody else had directed and Mm. they also noticed that you know how the west wing is that classic sorkin style and the fast walk and talks and the very complex ideas that he's able to put into a single monologue and make it make sense and Mm -hmm. it's really good in certain situations but it didn't work always in this movie. Now, it did Mm -hmm. work in the fact that the pacing of this movie was really good. It doesn't feel like it's two hours and 20 minutes long. It goes pretty quick. But one thing, I didn't notice it at first, but I did after I watched it a second time, is the actors were having a hard time with his dialogue. Idris Elba's accent keeps coming out. You can hear his British accent. He Mm -hmm. could not talk that fast like that, which I'm sure that was challenging. Or maybe that's just he's not good at accents. But I had zero clue he was British when I watched The Wire, and then I found out he was, and I was shocked. Yeah. And people did not like this whole Inception thing happening with flashbacks within flashbacks. That was a lot of flashbacks. And I don't think the dad ones were necessary. I think we could have gotten the same thing without that there. I didn't mind the opening scene. I thought the opening Mm -hmm. scene with the skiing was good because it showed that she was an athlete. It showed she was competitive. She crashed. That's devastating. She wanted to move on from that. She wanted to move away and not really have to be around the idea that that happened to her. Maybe bring in one thing talking about the brothers and how they were big sportsmen too. But all the dad shit can go. Yeah. And people hated, hated the Kevin Costner scene at the end of the ice skating rink. Yeah. And surprisingly, I really liked this movie and the fact that I do not play poker. I don't know how to play poker. I don't understand it whatsoever. But I felt like in this movie, they were explaining things in a way that I kind of understood what was happening as Mm -hmm. opposed to like a movie like Rounders, for example. I have no clue what's going on. I am fully just going off the emotions of the actors because I'm like, I'm I'm guessing that's bad. You know, that type of thing. But surprisingly, people who actually can play poker do not like this. If you play poker and you look at how the game is going it looks Mm -hmm. very very staged and not real but i was totally fine with it yeah same and that is the story and the movie 
Molly's game. We did it. Okay, what are we doing next week, Grace? Next week, we're doing Catch Me If You Can. Little Leo action. That'll be fun. And I told you this, but I saw recently that there was a book published in 2021 that alleges that some of the things that were written in the original book, Catch Me If You Can, that this movie is based on were possibly fake. So I got to get into all that. It's exciting. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Be on the lookout for our mini-sode where we will continue to talk about Molly's game. And I have broken down and made a pre-recorded outro with all of our socials and how to make a request and get to our website and merch and stuff like that. Because every time I do it at the end of the episode, I cannot talk and redo it 10 times. So I'm going to play that next. And then there will be some outtakes after that. But again, thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate you. And that's it. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. If you would like to make a movie request, you can do so by sending us a message through our website at www.crimescenespodcast.com. You can also send us a DM on any of our social medias. We are at Crime Scenes Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you like what you hear on the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you would help us spread the word by giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support the podcast through Buy Me a Coffee or our podcast merch, both of which can be found on our website or at the link in bio on our Instagram. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. Oh, hi, Zeppo. <laughs> you might hear Rice's dog, Zap, in the background. That is Zap. He's vocal today. His dad's not home, who's usually babysitting him while I record, so we'll see how this goes. Zap, lie down. So this movie actually starts, and we are in... Where the fuck are we? <laughs> Hold on, my battery is gonna die. Hold on one second, sorry. That's fine. Hold that thought. It's alive. Okay. Sorry. I, I saw 1% really? battery and freaked out. Um, fair. I don't even remember what. <laughs> um, oh, we still gotta do the other part. The next week. What are we doing next week? Next week, we're doing Catch Me If You Can. That's it. We did it. Ah!